All right, we're back. It is April 26, 2022. We are in Studio 3 here at Sunset Sound. We're joined by the two Pauls. Sunset Sound owner Paul Camerata makes his triumphant return, and one of the greatest audio specialists in the world, Mr. Paul Wolf. How is everybody? <laughs> oh, me? <clears throat> I'm good. I'm good to, to see you. Here. Yeah, we've had, we go way back. You could say that. Should, should, <laughs> should we well, even date ourselves? <laughs> here's the thing. I remember we all went to dinner one time, and we all were sitting around the table. We had that room at the at the the country club. We were having dinner, and I or said, Malbec was that? Yeah. It? Oh yeah, yeah. And so you, um, we were talking about how long we knew each other, and I said, "Oh yeah, I've known Paul for like thirty years," and you go like. I yeah. think it's like 47, and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it was like, no, let me correct you. I know. 42 years a, of friendship, right? A long-term associate, oh, at least. 43, 42, 43. Yeah, yeah. And you had your office across the street for some time. Yeah, at the crossroads. <clears throat> was that API or was that No, that was just me. I, I had that over there when I, when I had uh, Fix Audio. Okay. And I did a lot of consulting out of that office. I absolutely love that place. It's so cool. You know, I used to always look at that place from here when I would come to see you. And I would go, you know, and there was so much of the, the Scientologists that owned so much of everything, you know, here yes. that I thought that was like one of their headquarters. And then someone finally told me the story about that place. And it's actually, the story is incredible. It's the, a gangster used to own it in the 20s. Really? And he was murdered in the back corner of the of the property oh oh i didn't know and, that. yeah and so his wife built that facility his wife always had this vision okay of shopping and, and restaurants and, and housing she built that facility and she made each building uh, architecturally designed from the one of the countries that she visited when she was with him oh. and she would visit these countries on the cruise ship which is the middle building yeah it, it is a, a yeah and that's the, that's the ship yep and the very front of it. Now, if you go into Disneyland, the very first store that you see where you can buy stuff is a blue awning, and it goes up like that, and it has the globe turning, and Mickey Mouse is standing on top of it. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is that everybody knows that in their hometown, there's always a crossroad shopping center. Mm. And if you go around the country, it's literally everywhere. The first one who gets it, it has the, has the place. And she came up with this idea of having shops on the ground floor and apartments and offices above it. And it was basically the invention of the, the basically not a strip mall, but the, a mall yeah. that was not enclosed. And that's what it was. Hmm. And she did that as, out of respect for her husband. Wow. So that was in 1927 or something. When what they gangster was it? I have no idea. I don't know. But, I mean, so the history of that place goes way back to then. And then it, it, you know, it, it became it became Hollywood. I mean, that's where screenwriters and and you know uh, and composers and and everybody that had to do with the film industry. Alfred Hitchcock had the top floor of the the right hand building all the way at the back, Holy the whole cow. top floor. Um, the guy um, that does the album covers, um, Cash, was he there? He has a he has a place over oh, there. Oh, he's got a whole that. place that's got every picture of every album he ever ever did. Sheila Jaffe, the casting agent, she has a, she, her office was right across from mine. I know yeah. her. And, you know, it, you'd, walk out in the, uh, you'd walk out into the hallway, and there'd be like six women that all kind of look the same, and they're all waiting for an audition. And then 20 minutes later, you'd go out, and there'd be like 
six little kids and they all look the same and they're all going for an addition. And, and it was just continuous all day. He'd run into Mark Wahlberg. He'd be walking up and, you know, because she did all his stuff. She still did, <clears> yeah. So it was, you know, so it became it's an iconic place. It became like Hollywood. That was where everything was done out of. And then a lot of those offices moved to the lots, and that just kind of and it kind of kind of got run down. And then um, the guy who owns it now bought it and immediately got it set up as a historical building. Right. So that's why when they build all that crap next to it, that's going to stay, and they're going to restore yeah, it. Yeah, they can't touch the building. They're going to restore it, right? which is going to be really cool. So then now, you know, up until when they announced it, a lot of people left, but there are still people in there. And I was only paying 400 bucks a month rent. And I had Good two deal. parking spots inside a gated place. I mean, he didn't care. He, he just wanted to have it filled. He wanted nice people. You couldn't just walk in the office and rent something. Somebody had to recommend you if you wanted yeah. to get in there. Oh. There's no directory. There's about there's probably maybe seven or eight studios, recording studios over there. I think I remember the first time I went there, sometime in the seventies, later seventies. Um, Graham Nash had a studio there. That's the building. Uh, Rudy, that's the separate building. Rudy yeah. Records, and that used to be an Argentinian uh, Argentinian restaurant. Yeah, they so they had a studio there for many years. Um, not sure what he did there, but obviously. His stuff, or Crosby, Stills, Nash. Where he did he? some stuff, yeah, and then and then the those the guys over there took it over and they put a um, a big dead SSL in there. And, right. But it's a nice sounding room. It is. It was all built incorrectly, but it was it was nice. It was a nice sounding room. It has a vibe to it that's pretty cool. And it's still it's still an active studio. Yeah. Had, had you ever heard David Geffen was in there? I'm sure. I mean, all these people were in there at one point. I mean, everybody was because it was the place to be. Alice I mean, Cooper they, shot as the record cover of Muscle of Love in there too. Did you know yeah. that? And they yeah. tracked yeah, that record here, in Studio here, One. They went over there. Well, they did that that movie um, Argo. Argo. No way. Yeah. That's yeah. where Script, they John start, Goodman. They start the movie out right at the uh, the um, bus stop. Yep. On this side of the like street. Like period piece. You know <laughs> this yeah. side of the street, and they start out by panning up to the globe, and then they switch into like. The fourth office down from the right is where that script was originally written. And the CIA went there and they said, we need a script oh, for a movie because we want cool. to get these guys out of there. And the only way we can do it is if we go in as a film crew and all this kind of stuff. And they wrote the whole script there. They worked it all out. And then they all went over there. And there was a lot of pre... You talk about pre-development for a project. All those guys, they had, to, they had to create a history. So if they looked them up, they had a history. They had all this fake credentials for all these people and stuff like that and they they did get them out and they were literally seconds away from being discovered wow they were in the air because they had shredded everything and in those days the the shredders only did vertical shredding they didn't do crosscut stuff so they were put taping, it back together they yeah. were taping all yeah. the pictures of everybody together and they figured out who they were as the plane left the ground it was a quite an exciting movie <laughs> and it's a tr it's a very true story oh yeah um but that is uh that was that script was written there hmm. You know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool things that came out of that place. You know, so moving on to you, I've you're in Nashville now. You lived out in California for a long time. You've been out here four days. I saw you at sunset in a sunset sound t-shirt. I saw you on Stephen Slate's IG over <laughs> at Greg Wells' house, who's a gigantic producer. Are you considered one of the most important people to know in audio? 
And that's a know, serious question. I, I got in. I had a VI, <laughs> I had a VIP pass g- given to me by Jay Gordon. Oh yeah, you're at the Rainbow fiftieth at the Rainbow fiftieth uh, anniversary party. I went in. I went into that, and there was a line. There was a line two blocks down, and they just they had to stop letting people in. And so I, you know, I Jay was there. He said to come down, and so I I called him. And does he play an orgy? He's that's his band. Okay. Yeah, that's his band. Know, and they're a good band, man. They're just they're so they rocked the place. I, I I didn't get to see him, but I heard him from the street and they were just it was just bam, bam, bam. You know, they're such a good yeah. band. And he's such a nice guy, man. What a sweetheart he is. You know? But people say though that you're one of the most important people to know in audio. Even before I met you a few years ago, a friend a mutual friend, Jacob Skiba, consulted with you about that hybrid board they did at Arlen Studios down there. I mean, everybody comes to you when they need something. How would you define what you do in the audio world? I don't know. I don't, design I don't, to engineering to... I mean, I don't... I, I You know, my, my whole thing of design is I want to... I want to make something that's easy. I want to make something... And that you guys are like that, too. The, the, these boards, you could just make a record on it. There was yeah. nothing in the board that was in the way of anything that you tried to do. And I learned a lot being around people like you and, and, and Eric and all those people that were <clears throat> building consoles in those days, Frank Demidio and all those kind of people, yeah. um, that it was just, what do you need? Not what do you want, but what do you need? And so my whole philosophy was I always wanted to build something that had 70% of the features, but I would do it 100% of the way. Instead of where most of these people would do 100% of the features and they'd do them 70% of the way. <coughs> so um, my, my whole philosophy was that. Now, um, you know, and, and, and the companies that I've had, I've always done similar things, but I've always tried to do them differently and accomplish the same thing, and, you know, creating new sounds and stuff like that. And the ability, you know, to, to design something in this industry, I mean, at the level that we're at, you can't just design something and say, here, you have to have somebody, you got to be somebody that's had a reputation that people know. And so mm-hmm, when they hand yeah. it to you, they're actually going to use it. And it has to be good because anybody can make a mic pre, and everybody does. Right. But the ones that really have the sound that makes the—that's the glue that holds stuff together. There's certain aspects that you have to know, you know. And those are things that I was taught. I was taught by you know, my friendship with Saul Walker, which was—I mean—the guy was just. He designed at API for those who don't. Well, know. yeah, he he and and Lou Lindau and a couple other guys started API back in the day, and they were they were they were huge. And you know, this is actually it's, this is important to say because the, there was you know API. There was a lot of companies like Sound Techniques and and all those companies. They never made it to the point where they were making hundreds of consoles. Right. But you had like API and you had Neve, and there was you know a few that were doing that. And what happened to both of those companies, which is interesting, was that when um, when they started out doing this kind of stuff, it was like you guys needed a custom console, these guys needed a custom console. There weren't that many studios, but when the studio thing started, where people started building studios, everybody needed a console because the old consoles were just broadcast consoles. That, and a lot of the reason everything was mono because you had a program and an audition switch. And in the early days of stereo, they would just do audition for one channel and program for the other channel. And you had left and you had right. And so people, they didn't have pan pots then, you know. So that's why a lot of that early stuff was that way. A lot of the early stuff, because it was written, you know, it was was recorded in mono tracks, 
um, you know, they they could you know they didn't have pan pots. They could had they had to put the drums on one side. This is one of the things with the Beatles. And I had a chance to a- ask George Martin this question one time at a trade show, and I came up to him, and, and everybody's always saying, you know, it's like, oh, I love this record, like that. And I said, I have a very specific question to ask you, and he's like, interesting. <laughs> I said, so the tambourine in the Beatles stuff. Um, was it because they liked the tambourine a lot or is it because it added balance to the drums? And he kind of looked surprised. He said, well, there are some instances where the tambourine was what we needed to add to it. But there were other instances because when stereo came out, stereo had not taken off in Europe yet, but in the United States it was huge. And EMI basically said, we need everything in stereo and we need it right. tomorrow. So he said they didn't. nobody really knew what to do with stereo. So they would put some stuff on one side and some stuff on the other. And since your drum tracks were mono, Uh. you had to put them on one side or the other. So it really made it sound heavy. So by putting a tambourine on the other side, it balanced it out. So, you know, here's a medical procedure for a tambourine. Everybody uses a tambourine because the Beatles used tambourines, but they didn't use it entirely because they wanted to. They did it because they needed to balance out the tracks. Now, another thing about those early days, or the early mono days, is Jeff Emmerich said that in a lot of the mixes that they did, because all those Beatle tracks are floating around on the Internet. You can get a lot, download a lot of them. But he said that a lot of those tracks that are floating around, on all of them, there's like one track missing. And he said there were instances when they would have to do something live while they were mixing, or they added something right at the last minute and, and flew it in, that those didn't make it with the masters, you know? Oh. And yeah, I mean, this is like this. This is true with any piece of equipment out there. You know, the guy at Pultec did not design the Pultec equalizer because he thought it'd be cool, and he thought, "Oh my God, people are going to just think this is the greatest EQ of all time." Somebody came up to him and said, "I have a problem. I need you to do this." You know, and so he would design an EQ that had, you know, bass cut and treble boost, and then somebody else would say, "Well, we'd like to be able to adjust the mid range." So he'd come up with the, you know. XB dash one, you know, and then the XB dash two, and then the dash two A, because it was kind of like the dash two, but it had just one little extra thing. And it builds like that. Now these things are legendary because they were built correctly. They were built by people that knew what they were doing, you know. And so nowadays, people build more of the stuff is built to be cool than it is built for functionality, for functionality yeah. and for reason, you know. So, you know, and that, that a lot of the older equipment was like that. And a lot of the innovation in, in electronics was like that. And that's how I was taught by Saul Walker, my friendship with him. Because this guy was the smartest guy I ever met in my life. I mean, you would sit there and go like, you know, I like your shirt. And he'd go, yeah, he says, you know, this gold embroidery was invented by a guy and da-da-da-da-da. And the original gold was used to do, you know, kind of like when I tell stories and shit like that, people go like... <laughs> You know, and I mean, it, it, he just he knew everything about everything. He said, "Oh, that was a company called so and so, and they found out they did this by plating this with that." And you know, I mean, he, ask him anything. And the same thing with with Rupert. But both of these guys, okay, they they started making consoles, and everybody needed a console, so they sold hundreds of consoles. And then there's a point when. Everybody had a console. Then what? <laughs> then what do you do? Well, API was in a, they were in a, in a grade school. That's how big their place was. And Neve was in two or three different facilities. They had a huge facility. 
and they built consoles and and, and it, it kind of brick walled everybody kind of hit this wall where it kind of slowed down yeah. and you were you weren't building three consoles a month anymore but your whole infrastructure was based around that so a lot of these guys had started having um, you know the same problems at that same time because you went from everybody wanting to be a uh, uh, you know, everybody needing a console to only your newest customer and your oldest customer. And that was it. And from that point on, that's all you had. You didn't have everybody else. So, you know, and it, it, it brought about the demise of both companies. And both companies had ups and downs at different points, you know. And, well, you know, and so API, you know, API, they ended up going out of business. Let's get to that, though. Let's talk about the history of, one, your guys' friendship, but also let's incorporate the studio because... Sunset Sound started in 1958 with Studio One. 67, Studio Two is built. 1976, Studio Three comes on board because we're so busy here. That solidifies Sunset Sound as a complete API house. 1980, Mr. Camerata here wants to design this, uh, a console for Studio One, correct? Yeah, so around the late 70s, uh, after Studio One, Two, and Three were online, we started to um, see that Studio One was getting to the point that the board was at the saturation point of anything more we could do to it, and it we needed a larger board. This kind of dovetails into how I met Paul. This room came online in '76. Yeah. This this room originally was a mixing room only. We did not have this space. Uh, Audio Rents was in this space company that we co-owned yep. and um so it came on ryan uh, online around 76 by 77 we were getting so many requests to have a third tracking room we decided to move them out and basically build a, a studio in here and tie it into the control room well the board was a mixing board so it was like it, it didn't have a monitor section it only had 12 mic pre's, and they were like 312 API mic pre's. So we were like, oh gosh, we've got to, you know, we got to deal with this. So that's when my father assembled this team. Um, it was Don Wolford, it was Dean Jensen, and it was Eric Benton, who was our head chief tech engineer here. And the first thing we needed to do was design a mic pre for the Studio 3 console. Because we needed we needed more <laughs> thirty two mic breeze. right, and we didn't want to go with the three twelve necessarily. So these guys brainstormed, and over a period of time, came up with the nine ninety dual op amp um, sunset what we call the tootie now mic pre, and those first were installed in Studio Three. That was the first placement of those mic okay. breeze. Probably around 1978. Now, the Tootie was named after your father. I when, we, when you packaged it for me and we put it in the 500 series rack, we both decided we wanted to pl- pay homage to <laughs> my father. <laughs> so we named it the Tootie. Right. Very cool. Um, and he was because he was a trumpet player and had a band called Camerata, right? He, well, he was a trumpet player, but he was in the Jimmy Dorsey band. Okay. Yeah, as a teenager. So, um, and he was the arranger, but we won't get into that. So anyway, going back to Studio 3, so we, we build the mic pre's, and then we're at the point where, okay, we've got the Studio 3 console working, Studio 3's online, and my father's like, we still need a console for Studio 1. 
we we have to we we got and we don't want to go buy one there was really nothing on the market we were interested in we weren't going to do the SSL route well we, SSL wasn't I'm not even sure they were around. They weren't quite, I don't think, quite. Maybe yeah. Maybe in the early version, but they weren't quite there. <clears throat> well, we weren't going to do the Neve route. <clears throat> you know, everybody had the V, and it was just like, oh, get it. You know, yeah. that just wasn't us. So, And, you know, Trident, or, you know, we'd never been anything else. So um, he said, we got to build a console. He, he was adamant about that. So he put, like I said, he put that design team together for the Mike Prees. So then they morphed into the console building business, and he said, we've got to build a, um, we're going to build a sidecar first and see how it works. So that's what we did. We built a 12-channel sidecar first. And then after we tested that and used it, and we were very happy with it, and it was all based around the 990 op amp, which I guess Dean Jensen was involved with. And that was the new op yeah, it was amp a, it at was the a, time. like a design from the 60s that he took that, and updated to a... Something that was a little more packageable and operational. Right. So um, we started building the console. So that was probably around 79, started going into production on that. I remember coming to visit you and seeing that console every year, turned, it, turned that, upside down. That took, that, I think that took about four or five years to build. Yeah, it was a long that was, time. <laughs> that was a big money dream, let me tell you. Um, Plus, nobody wanted to be out of a job afterwards, so they right. just sort of stretched it out. It's one of those things where you have the time-lapse studio, a <laughs> yeah. picture of the console being built, and you see, like, trees, trees growing, you know, buildings burning down, being rebuilt, skyscrapers going up, you know, cars. You know, they go from, like, old cars to new cars, you know, people, like, hair growing on their faces and stuff like that, and the console is just sitting there with wires being added. Just, yeah, one at a time. One at a time. So anyway, they're building the console, and we get around to the point of, we need EQs for the um, for the console, so we better order some APIs because this is an API house. We we've got basically three API custom boards in each room, and um, I remember Bill Robinson. He was our manager at the time, and he put in a PO to uh, everything audio. It was that was the API dealer in town, and uh, we were trying to conserve obviously money, and we didn't need all. 65 or whatever it was, you know, API, you know, 550s at the time. So I think we were ordering in banks of eight. So he puts in an appeal for the, the first date, or remember that, and they, and they come in and, and they take them in the shop. And, um, you know, we pull them out of the box and, and they're like, oh, look at these brand new 550As. I mean, they look great. I mean, the knobs, the faceplates and everything. So, well, let's open one up. Let's take a look, you know. So, Slide the cover off, and everybody just looks at each other, and we're just like dumbfounded. It's like, what? That's that's not a 550A. It's like a, a single op amp. It doesn't have the Leadex switches, and it's completely different circuit. And we're like, what is this? And and somewhere etched on the the panel or, or the circuit board, it says 550A dash one by Datatronics, and. So I remember Bill calls up uh, the guy Brian Cornfield, I think. At, at <laughs> I every, remember Brian at, at everything audio and says, you know, what the fuck did you send us? Oh, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Elon owns Twitter now. We can say anything we want. He said, <clears throat> you know, what, what what did you send us? He goes, well, we just got those shipment from API. That's their latest version. We're like, 
Well, we don't want the latest version. We want the original version. So, in other words, what we ordered. You know what we ordered exactly. So, um, something happens where it's a little murky in my mind. But they come back and go, "Well, those aren't available right now." And you know, when are they going to be available? Well, we're not sure. So we send the five fifty eight dash ones back, and we're kind of waiting. And it's it's not like. You well, know, you put a PO in for like 250 of them or something. No, no. This is this for the console. So oh, okay. We, we put a PO for 60 of them, I think, in. But um, so they don't come, and we keep checking on it. And, and meanwhile, we got a lot of time because the console's several years down the road, you know. But uh, <laughs> It'll be done next week. It'll be done yeah, next it'll week. be done next week. I promise. Um, so anyway, the, the EQs don't come. And then we hear API has gone out of business. It's gone. And that's why they didn't come, because they were just moving out, I think, what they had. And anyway, so they're gone. So I remember we had a meeting, and we're like, what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, we have to have API 550As for our console. Are, are we going to have to buy these on the used market? I mean, put old EQs in a brand new console? So I remember going, well, what was the deal with that EQ? It said made by Datatronics. I'm like, who is Datatronics? So <laughs> I, so I call them up and I find out and I start talking to them and they said, well, we're a subcontractor for uh, for API. We do stuff for them. And I said, well, I've got an EQ, not like you you make, but similar. Would you be interested in uh, in building it for me? And they said, well. Why don't you come out and talk to us? So um, I grabbed an EQ, not that day, but um, made plans, went back to Datatronics, which is in Reston, Virginia. Yeah. And um, that's when I met the suits, as I like to call them. (laughs) It was was really a different world for us because everyone (laughs) was wearing a suit, you know. Maybe you weren't, but... I wasn't, but yeah, Atlantic Research. Yeah. Atlantic. They were like really. They were stuffed shirts. They were, they were almost kind of Mormon esque. Well, the owner, (laughs) the president of the company, was a Mormon, and he had like. Oh, he was. Yeah, he was. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why I'm thinking that. But everybody else was. But yeah, there was actually there were some really cool people there. There was a guy, um, and you know I can't for the life of me remember everybody's name. But there was a guy who invented the. He, the, the flip-flop that was used in the original computers after they went from tubes. And he had one of them on his desk. There was another guy that did uh, n- was a Navy naval engineer who designed submarines and grounding systems in submarines and stuff like that. And they all worked for Atlantic Research. Yeah, I remember they had a communication systems for the destroyers. They had and, Yeah, they yeah. had four divisions. They had yeah. the, the solid rocket booster division. They had the data patch division. They had, you know, different things like that. And this was the people who made the data control systems. Yeah. And they did a, they did a data control system for, I think, a, a destroyer. And when they sent it to them, um, it didn't work. And the only way that the, I guess, the military could get... A, budget to have them build another one to finish it because it went way over budget and they just had to have it is they sunk the ship and then went we're gonna have to build another one oh boy (laughs) so they came back and then they built it correctly but um yeah it was it was really bizarre and i was working i was working at a studio in dc at the time Mm -hmm. and we did a we had a synclavier we had one of the first synclaviers 
And then we did a seminar and there was a guy showed up that said there's a company in Reston that builds, you know, the API stuff. And we had three 550s in our rack. And I remember using them on everything. I'm going like, oh, my God, these are, I just love the way these sound, you know. Yeah. So I used them on everything I ever recorded. And, you know, this guy says, well, they need, you know, they need to, you know, should go out there. And our studio was changing hands. So I went out there and applied for a job. And I got it because they had just discovered where you just left off. Yeah. They were at a point where it's like, well, maybe we should start building this stuff maybe because we should there's do a market. Well, so I'll move forward with the, the EQ. So I come. Can I ask a question real yeah, quick? Sure. So are you and your dad freaking out, though, because you own a studio with three rooms and they all have API components in there? So now you've kind of Relatively good amount of freaking out, A, a I bit. Would say. You know, I mean, there was always the alternate that we could go to the used market, although buying 60 EQs on the used market... Back then, it would have been difficult. It would have been difficult. Yeah, nobody was selling them. There was nobody no was, to sell unless them. they were, you know, piecing out a console yeah. or something. So people hadn't started even doing that yet. You no, know, they hadn't because things were too new. But anyway, so I show them the EQ, and um, they said, "Well, can you leave it with us, and we'll get back to you." And I guess they analyzed it probably with you and other people. That was um, right when I started. You remember that too? Obviously, I remember. That. So they come back and they said. We can do this, but it won't be exactly in the configuration it is now because we can't do these LEDX switches with the hardwired components on it. It's, it's just not cost effective, especially for um, you know the amount of, of units you need. Um, so I said, well, what can you do then? They said, well, we can redesign it electrically exactly the same and repackage it and... Uh, but, you know, we don't have access to 2520 op amps. And I, so at that point, I think we decided, well, let's make it in line with the console, which the whole console was 990s op amps. So we decided to do design the new 550A for Sunset Sound with a 990 and then the Jensen by Rickenbacker transformer that we were putting in throughout the whole console because the API components weren't available, and they would also mirror what's in the console. So that's what we did. And um, I had to pay him a design fee, which I believe we owned. Um, yeah. Because it was specific to us. And they couldn't sell them to anyone else. It was, it was just a contract for us to do a build of, like, 60. And um, we started. So we started building them. So somewhere along the line there, um, they had an idea that, wow, they, they were, you know, I remember they, they wanted to see our financials and stuff like that. And a few, and they were like, oh, this is a good business to be in and at the time. <laughs> you know, and they were like. Little do they know. And, and, yeah. So. Um, you made all your money from the sign on the roof. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they, they come back to me and they said, you know. We're thinking about maybe getting in the audio business, which you probably know a little more about than I do. But uh, and I'm like, what do you mean? They they said, well, we're thinking about resurrecting all the API products. I go, really? You are? And they said, yeah. I go, like what? Well, like the modules for the consoles and and like the everything, the oscillator, the uh, fight, all the the whole EQ range. Um, yeah. the compressor. I go, so basically everything. What about consoles? And they were like, well, no, but 
That came later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm like, this is great. I remember, so I go back and talk to my dad, and they're like, he's like, we got to get in on this. <laughs> so, so we go back to them, and then we're like, we're all for it. We're all 100%, and, and we can help you sell the product. Wow. And they said, you can? And I said, absolutely. So they made us the West Coast distributor for the, the new API line. Um, and then they, they needed a marketing guy. Well, they needed a lot of guys, and you probably can fill this in, but they needed a lot of guys. They needed a marketing guy, and we had had a marketing guy here that worked for us in the 60s named Larry Blakely because <laughs> Larry, Larry, because uh, we were an Ampex distributor. I'm breaking out in hives. No. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. Um, but we, could, we couldn't get Ampex tape machines. You know, they were like hen's teeth back then. They, you know, it was like they just didn't make that many. So we decided to become a dealer. And that way, you know, we had access to Ampex tape machines. So we could get the <laughs> 8, 16, 24 tracks. Because uh, I remember renting 24 tracks from Wally Hyder because we couldn't buy one. You know, like a, like a 3M or something. Anyway, so they hire Larry Blakely. And then they hire the godfather, Saul Walker. Anyway, oh, wow. so I'll let you right. fill in after. Hold yeah, on one second, this. though. They, you indirectly resurrected API. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. I mean, uh, I mean, um, API would I, not be here today. Yeah. 90% sure. I, I told Larry Dropa, the current owner, that story, and he kind of gave me a dazed <laughs> in the headlight look like, really? Got my and royalty? Like, really? I said, you know, if we hadn't have wanted those EQs, of course, that company could have they would have never got it. They would have never got it because I wouldn't. I wouldn't get hired there. Saul would have never got hired no, there. No, nobody. Larry Blakely, the API would have never been resurrected, and it really comes down to us needing those EQs, right? That that why API Definitely. came back from the dead, and that's when they that's when they put together the team of Lou Hansen, who ended up working for me later on. Lou is the, one of the smartest people I know as well. Saul Walker was first, but then they hired Lou Hansen, Pete Barthelson, myself, a few other people. Um, I was in the test department. I was the, the, the head guy there because I'd worked on consoles because I mixed records and stuff. So yeah. they had everybody that was there knew stuff about hi-fi audio or stuff. And like Lou and Pete designed a new op amp, the 2525, which is it had a couple of errors in it, but it was a great op amp. You know? And so, I mean, it was, and I learned a lot from those guys too. I mean, I, when I designed the Tone Lux op amp, um, I designed it from what I learned from those guys, and that that is a sweet op amp. But yeah, so those guys, um, so they put together that team and they started doing that. Um, the what they needed to be able to do because these guys, this is Atlantic Research. These guys, they built data patches and stuff like that. And what happened was not the audio world. No, it wasn't the audio world. But they <laughs> they got the overhead was so high, it, and the data patching in those days were these like modular patch bays for data, and it was very competitive. And they were not, they weren't being, they weren't able to compete. So they spun off a bunch of people, and they were basically the people they wanted to get rid of, okay? Spun them off to start Datatronics as a contract house to build the data patch system. And they had a guy there, I don't remember the guy's name, but this guy was just like, he was one of these fucking mechanical geniuses that could make anything. <laughs> and he made this, he made this press that, that, that the, um, the two halves of the, uh, the the data patch case were plastic, and one had a pin and one had a hole. And this thing, you'd set it down, and it go, it would melt the the tips of the plastic, and you know, like turn them into rivets. Yeah, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Wow. So they said, okay, we need to make the switches 
we need to put the switches on headers so we can test the switches. So when we go to manufacturing, they can just put the switches in the EQs and they're done. And so we made, we made these test fixtures that they put the switch in, had this thing that held it in place. And then you had, we had knobs that had um, thumb screws on them so you could put the knobs on. And then there were LEDs that oh, were set up cool. with the right resistor value. So as you turned it, it would go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like that. And you could test the, you know, the, the switches in a matter of seconds. No, that was a pass-fail thing. Then it was, it was very accurate. Wow. So they had that, and then they, they wanted, they had to add the, the current thing because the impedance of the input of those 990s needed to be lower, and the circuit was very high. So they had to build a little current circuit to put in there for the 990s, but they made it so you could leave it out if you wanted to put a 2520 in. Now, the reason the 2520 didn't exist was because... Um, it wasn't. They didn't. They didn't um, not have the twenty five twenties. They just hadn't made any, and they didn't think they were ever going to make any. So they just never did. So that's why it was like whatever. So the five sixty when the five sixty A came out, yeah. they did that. They that was actually Doug Simon at Studio Consultants that got them to build that, but they built it with the IC and the power transistors because they didn't know if the five sixty the the twenty five twenty is going to be around either. Yeah. So the difference between that EQ and the 560 was a slightly different circuit. The, the original 560 had kind of a lopsided bell shape, which gave it kind of a characteristic. So the new one was pretty pretty even. But the the 550A, which they ended up calling the Dash 1, the Dash 1. was basically a very similar to a switch-selectable version of the 560A. They didn't think you'd pick up on that when they no, gave you the dash. I, I think that's all they had. Oh, no, yeah, this is no. See, there's there's no conspiracy behind this. This is the thing that's interesting. Everybody blamed blamed Datatronics for the 558-1, and it was originally API. Yeah. And API was trying to get the cost of the 550A down because if you've ever opened one of those <laughs> things up, it is a fucking mess. Labor inside. intensive. But what a cool design. But it was, you know, resistor for every position. And you had a Q resistor for every position. And it was, you know, there was a lot of stuff on those switches. So it was not easy to bake. And by putting them on headers, they were able to plug in. If you had a bad one, you could replace right. it. If you wanted to clean them, you could clean them, you know, whatever, as long as you didn't give them to Brent Averill. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> those who know will we'll, know. We'll get that. <laughs> um, so, you know, so they started doing that. And then when you brought back the um, – when you brought early on, because they, they had just – I had just started working there. And yeah. um, when you brought the EQ back in – I listened to it, and I thought, these really don't sound right. There's something weird about them. So I dug out this old Hewlett-Packard spectrum analyzer they had, and I put it on the spectrum analyzer. And I discovered that they were constant Q. The 558-1. The 558-1, mm -hmm. which basically means that as you boost it, it goes like this. Didn't have a bell curve, just like a right? like a five fifty, like a five sixty. It was you know it was a fixed curve. Yeah, where the five fifty a goes like this. Uh. Okay, and the interesting thing about the five fifty a is if you invert it so it's cutting. If you filled this with water, as you cut it, it held the same amount of water because it got deeper and narrower. Uh. So you call it kind of an equal energy equalizer. Because the amount of, you know, energy in that bucket is the same. 
But the cool thing is, is that if you clicked at 2dB, it was this very wide, broad lift of everything around it. It was almost like, I think it was two and a half octaves or maybe even three. So I looked at it on the spectrum analyzer and it was like, and I went, Saul, you better come over and see this. Okay, so Saul walked over and he looked at it and he had that look on his face like, holy shit, I forgot about that. Did he design the 558-1? Well, no. It was an, there was another guy who did it, but what they did when they tested it is they tested it just the frequencies zero and full up and the frequencies. And they did it. They boosted it up to that point, and the frequency didn't vary because any of those types of EQs, you know, and th- this is a, this is actually an interesting fun fact. There's only there's only like six to eight. Equalization designs. You know, there's the twin T filter. There's a state variable. There's you know, like a, a Massenberg's uh, twin T parametric type EQ. When you de- design an EQ, you got to pick one of those. Okay. Okay. And one of the rules with the older equalizers, and the reason all of the old EQs sound the way they do, is because when you had a capacitor and an inductor in a circuit, as you change the boost and cut, you're changing the impedance on the top of it. So you had to make up that difference on the bottom. And as you increase the resistance on the bottom, the Q widens in that circuit, okay, if you want to keep that frequency in the center position. So it was kind of the reason that all old EQs sounded warm like that was because of that. You basically had to do that. Now, it wasn't until the invention of what they call a gyrator, which was an IC circuit that simulates an inductor, that was stable with impedance, that that changed. And they started coming out with constant Q equalizers. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knew. Like like the guys at Pultec, you just, if you wanted to make an EQ, you had to compensate on the bottom of the tank circuit what you had at the top. So if this was 10K, that would be zero. It'd be very narrow. And if you, you had to go like this and you had to go like that to Mm. make it. So it's always 10 K. So as you clicked it through, but the more resistance on the bottom, the further away from the ground that circuit became and the the circuit basically becomes more relaxed. So it's a lot broader. It's not as peaky. So the, the 558, the old pull text, all those old EQs were all proportional Q equalizers. Unknowingly, it was just the way they had to be. When they came out with a new one, it wasn't, like known either that oh these are going to be fixed cues when i showed that to saul he went oh yeah like i said he just went like oh my Uh god i didn't even think of that and that's when we discovered what they were by that time you were stuck with 250 of them because (laughs) well as a dealer as a dealer right we were selling them well, they were a low cost cost alternative version to a five. Yeah, and you know what? To be so, to be it, clear, it was a good solid EQ. Yeah, it was. It was a good EQ. It wasn't an A. It was no. like a three band five sixty, but it was still a very good equalizer. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it seemed like an, an A was like nine hundred or a thousand bucks, and those five fifty A's were three hundred dollars. Yeah, dash ones, you know, the dash ones. And, right. and so someone that had a API console that had been gutted, or somebody wanted a little lunchbox or whatever. They could buy a pretty nice EQ for a reasonable amount of money. And the shelving, the shelving on that was fine. Yeah, and there was nothing wrong with the. But shelving. for us, it wasn't going to work. Now, there's one really cool thing about that about the uh, the new EQ when they designed the new EQ, the little square buffer board that had the transistors. Oh right, when they for yeah, us when they because they wanted to put that. the buffers on a board on as a well because it is great for servicing. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't know is that that pinout of the socket 
is a TLO-74. It's a chip pinout. That's it's a TLO-74 right. pinout. So yeah. you could take a TLO-74, plug, plug it in, in there, and test the EQ yeah. to see if it worked. In an emergency, you could use that. It did sound a little different, but it wasn't like awful. If you needed to do that, you could do that. But that was something that a lot of people don't realize. That's one of the things that we did is we made sure that that... You know, there was like some compatibility. There were a lot of smart people that worked at. at no, that was a great repackaging because if you ever take a 550A, like the guy, I see the guys in the shop, they're trying to replace those transistors and or you know check which one's bad. It's a nightmare. But it with is. the little daughter board, where you just pop, pop it, it off and you and you can work right on it, or it's easy to well, the other pop thing, a new one on. The other thing is that Texas Instruments made a transistor series called the TIS series, mm-hmm. and they were like T- TIS ninety twos, TIS seventy fours, all these different transistors, but they were reversed. All transistors nowadays, the standard for a small package transistor is emitter based collector. Yeah, they were collector based emitter. So if you took one of the old ones out and you looked up an equivalent, it might say, you know, a 2N whatever, whatever, and you pop it back in, it doesn't work because you have to turn it around. So, you know, this is the, and this, is, this was no fault of them. This is just like a company thinking, let's make them this way. And it's like, why? Everybody else makes them the other way. It's like, what is wrong with you people? Uh, but wow. so that's, that's, that's the discovery of that particular thing. It was with the, the spectrum analyzer. And every time I see one of those Spectrum analyzers on eBay or something, they're huge. I'm so tempted to buy one just because it was like a turning point in the history of audio. <laughs> was that, that device changed the world, you know? And so that's when they discovered it, and that's when they started. To, they, they told you. You were there like two days after that. Yeah. And I think I might have even showed you the difference. Yeah, that sounds familiar. A little green screen, and yeah. it's like, and it's like, you know, like this, and it was the like, curves. oh my god, you know. And that's the reason, and they didn't know, nobody knew. Datatron's got the blame for that because they were the ones that publicly put them out because API kind of went out of business right as you got. Right. The it was first the Datatronics EQ. Yeah. yeah, that's what they got blamed for, and yeah. they came out with everything else. They started. They 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 released the five sixty A, which was it didn't sound great because it didn't have a transformer. You could get it transformerless. Yeah, we have some of those. Yeah. And in the early days, pin fifteen, which I turned into the forty eight volt phantom power pin, was the direct output of the amplifier. So you right. had that's why there's an orange sticker in all the lunch boxes that say caution. If you have an old five sixty, cut pin fifteen because if you plug it into this, it's going to back into the amplifier and blow it up. Oh, nice. And it's still there. They still put it in there because there's always going to be that guy that has one that's going to plug it in and go, you know. So that's, you know. But, you know, the other thing, though, when you came up with that, in the days that you did that, there were no 500, there were no 500 series modules. There was oh, a, no. There was a company called Troisi that made a really cool dynamic three-band EQ that, was a, that had a, a compressor threshold knob and then frequency and boost which was very cool. And they were actually next to me at one of the trade shows that we were at. And then there was um, APSI, APSI, who came up with a little click, click, click graphic EQ switch. Oh, And the okay. thing that was interesting about that equalizer I remember that one. is most EQs start from zero and they, 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 you know, they move out like this. That EQ is like a graphic equalizer turned up all the way, except the levels were turned down, so they were at zero. So even at zero, the response was like this, because there were these tuned things that you just moved up and down and level. It's a very strange equalizer, but great for guitar, because they always sounded like they were up all the way. 
But that, that, that EQ was, had the API symbols on it, and it was called the 559. And that's, they, were, they sold them to API. They, they made a deal with API that they could be the only people that could sell them other than them putting them in consoles. And in return, they put the API Logo. spears uh, on wow. the EQ. That was it. There were no 500 series. And so when we started making, after I bought API, and we started making um, the racks that we had we just created at Datatronics, it was Pete, myself, and Lou, and Saul, because right then was when everybody started. We talked about this earlier before we were on, but everybody yeah. started parting out consoles, and they needed racks to put them. Yeah, in. lunchbox. We built things. our own out of a Vero rack, and that's what everybody yeah. was doing. So we actually made the first 500 series rack there, and you know, and then of course everybody knows this by now. But the lunchbox was created by Aphex to sell their modules, and people were buying the lunchboxes but not their modules. And so when Marvin Caesar, who was a good friend of mine, he he was going to discontinue it. When I owned API, I asked him for if he would mind if I started making them, and it was I, I think it was, I believe it was Art Kelm who came up with the coined the name Lunchbox. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, because he was selling them. He he was selling like um, uh, um, what's his face from Journey. Um, Steve Perry. Steve Perry. Yeah. had a lunchbox that had a mic pre EQ compressor and a little fader that he had made for him, so he could. <laughs> that was his recording. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was his recording thing. So with his U forty seven and that box, didn't matter what studio he went into, it was his sound. That was his guitar. Wow, that was cool. cool. And that was, the, was really and so well. everybody everybody was buying wow. the lunchboxes and not use. Well, Art was buying most of them, but and, yeah. and, and he was building them. At that time, there was the. That was when the first ISDN lines came out. So a lot of these voiceover guys were working from their homes. So they would have a little lunchbox in their microphone, a little sound booth thing, and they would do their live broadcast stuff or their ad copy from home. Yeah. So that's kind of where that came about. And then when, when that started to become a popular item, then, it, then people started making modules to go into them. And what really took that whole industry off was when um, the EU started the whole Rojas thing, where the lead-free, cadmium-free, oh, all that stuff. Right. And you had to have safety regulations for power and stuff like that. In the early days, it would cost you twenty grand to get certified for a power supply. So by people making a module that fit in that rack, they were able to go around all those regulations. Because it was low voltage. Because it was, yeah, because it was already I remember powered. that you, uh, gear had to be UL approved. Because I remember one of the reasons we relocated audio rents from here to West L.A., city of West Hollywood, I mean, they were out of the city of L.A. Because the city of L.A. was actually, they had inspectors that were going around to studios and other and film places and checking to see if the equipment was UL approved. Right. And then they came up with their own yeah. approval and they had their own Los Angeles City approval. They used to come to the trade shows. Oh, they wow. They come around to the trade shows and everybody was just like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like like the tax collector. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then all of a sudden the EU came out with their stuff and yeah. they eliminated. And, you know, the, the sad thing about that is they came out with all this stuff and then the early silver solder. And this is what they've realized is the reason everybody got away from silver solder in the 30s was because it was brittle. And stuff wasn't really close together in those days. But fast forward, when silver tarnishes, if you look at it under a microscope, it grows these little trees. Mm -hmm. And what would happen with these closely spaced chips is it would grow trees between them and short them out. Short out the uh, Yeah, and plus the heat... 
because of the silver solder being <coughs> 100 degrees hotter, the heat would melt just about every capacitor that existed on the face of the earth. So it was just, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and it was brittle, vibration. I mean, Cinemag to this day, Cinemag Transformers still has, their only failures they ever have are small bridges from the solder or the wires because when the wire would come out of the, 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 um, the solder cone, it would, there was some flex in there because it's a soft material. The silver was very hard, so yeah. it's a sharp point, so the wire would vibrate and snap off. That's the only kind of failure they had, and they eliminated that by putting a little dot of silicone on top of each solder connection to act as a cushion because uh-huh. of that, what that caused. And because of the, you know, the higher temperature and the shorting and stuff, so they, give, they did this because of all the motherboards and the cell phones that were being thrown in the trash, all the lead. So what are the first thing they did was they did a waiver to all the people that made computers and cell phones because they were shorting. So the people that they ruined everybody else's lives with this bullshit ended up, the guys that they did it for ended up getting a waiver. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So that's, but this is all this stuff. All this stuff is interweaved. I mean, you talk about drama. You could do a, you know, like a, uh, one of those, uh, the the women of, you know, of Hollywood type TV shows, <laughs> but it would be like the engineers of regulations. And it was just like, why did this product go away? Well, it was probably some regulation or some thing. And why did the 558-1 sound so bad? It wasn't because somebody was out to get you. It was because that's, they didn't know. Until I discovered it and showed them, and it was and then everybody knew because they were all engineers and they knew anyway, but they just forgot. You know, it was like <laughs> you didn't think about that. You go, oh, did you turn off the oven before we left? <laughs> no, I thought you did. Oh, I don't know. And then you drive eight hours back and you find it's off. You know? Yeah, great. For those that don't know, or maybe are wondering, what define API sound? If we made a record here, you and I, and we were in Studio Two on an Eve eight hundred eight eight. Or in this room, on that Frank Domitio API, if you have API components, how's the sound? Is it brighter? Is it clearer? The, both consoles, both consoles um, compared to some of the solid-state consoles, both consoles can come across as being a little darker, okay, just because of the transformers and stuff. That's just the way it is. Uh, anytime you have a transformer, introduce a transformer to something, you have what they call hysteresis, which is a, a lag of when you charge the transformer with the current, it, it has to magnetize the core, so it goes up like this, and that ramp time causes a delay. So that affects things. That causes a distortion. Um, depending on how you drive the transformer, what type of amplifier drives the transformer, that distortion can be second harmonic, third harmonic, stuff like that. The API stuff was typically second harmonic. It was steel. And it had a nice second harmonic content in the low frequencies from like 300 on down. It went up quite steep. Um, And if you increase the level, the distortion went up with it. The Neves, on the other hand, um, well, I, you know, my, my Tone Lux stuff, a lot of people say my Tone Lux stuff sounded a lot like the Neves stuff. And my Tone Lux stuff um, was, I had a different type of amplifier driving the transformer. It wasn't an op-amp, it was a stable amplifier that had no gain. Hmm. And because of that, there was very little interaction with the transformer. That transformer had primary third harmonic distortion, hmm. but it was the same curve. And I used steel as well, and it was the same type of curve. So... And the knees, I think, are more third than they are second. In the low frequency range like that, either one sounds fatter. 
But the the primary difference between the APIs and like with mine, and I believe the Neve was the same way, was that the distortion didn't go up with the level. The distortion kind of stayed where it was. So a snare drum would go through, be clean, and then would settle into a harmonic. Wow. Where with the API, when it went through the peak, there was distortion on the peak. So the API had a tendency to sound a, a fatter in a different way than the Neve or the API. Because everybody always said the Neves were always a little cleaner than the APIs, but they, with just regular music, they were pretty much the same, but it was the transients that the Neve popped through cleaner, the API was a little dirtier. But at the same time, that was the sound that you wanted. There were certain things that you wanted that sound on, certain things you wanted that sound on. Nowadays, of course, there's like 800 fucking million, you know, <laughs> yes. 500 modules, and you can pick any flavor you want, and people get too caught up in the flavors. But basically, you had the two directions. You had the API sound, you had the Neve sound. They both made great records. And then, you know, when SSL came in, they didn't have the transformers. They, didn't, they were mostly just, they were trying to be more like, more like clean, and they were, you know, that was their whole thing. Colorless. Colorless, yeah. Um, and it was interesting because all the equipment we had in those days was this dark, heavy equipment, all the tube stuff, all the compressors, all that stuff. And it made these beautiful sounding records that were just just thick with whipped cream, you know. And when they went over to the digital recordings, the sound of the tape and stuff like that kind of went away and you had a cleaner sound. So now this warmth was even more important. But it was interesting, when that happened, a lot of the, the earlier devices that were designed to be cleaner and more transparent became less popular because the recording medium was transparent. So the last thing you want to do is go through something transparent into something transparent. You wanted some dirt and to record that. So all those little things, they're all ebb and flow things with the industry, the direction of the way you know, sound goes and the way the, the, you know, the process goes. Yeah. But they, they all have a reason. I mean, it was like... The, the when I when I bought the company, um, data it was th this is actually very cool. Datatronics at the time because they had a lot of really smart people there. They had a guy there who came to them who was involved in API in the last days. Who was the guy who brokered them being the 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 um, the maker of the stuff, licensed maker of the stuff. Um, he came to them and he had invented in his life Pong, the first video game. Oh yeah, and oh. the speak and spell. And he had this idea for payphones that when you do a when you call long distance on a payphone, it was always a fucking nightmare. So we came up with the credit card slot that you wipe a card through. That was from Datatronics. That was from Datatronics. And you wow. wipe the card through it and you had a bunch of buttons and you could pick the long distance company and you could pick the language. Now the reason that all came about was that early on when MCI was doing long distance, API or uh, uh, AT&T didn't like the fact that they had competition. So, and they had all, they, they owned all the copper. Every, anywhere you went, it was AT&T copper. So they had to lease those lines if they wanted to do long distance. And for some reason, MCI was charging about 20% less than AT&T and it drove them fucking nuts. <laughs> and so what it was is we actually made a test device for them called the DigiTalker that was this rack mount device that just talked. It would unhook, it would lift the phone up, which they call off hook. Yeah. It would talk and then it would unhook and it would set up the sequence. So it would simulate conversations and they would analyze the conversations because they couldn't do it in real time because it's against the law. 
you need a wiretap, you know, license for that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So so this is what this is so they they we made this test device for them because they were coming out with this they were finalizing this product that would take the spaces between words and put them together and create new phone lines. And that's how they were beating AT&T at their own game is they were using the space between words to create new phone lines, and then they were using those phone Holy lines. Cow. So when, a- when when AT and yeah, so these guys were smart. So when AT and T figured this out, they started introducing extra loops of wire into their lines that they were leasing. Because with a telephone line, it's an unshielded balanced line. It has to be absolutely balanced, and it'll reject everything. The wires, the t- phone wires you see up there, there's 50 pair twisted together right. with one shield. And there's no crosstalk. But now when you start hearing other conversations, it's because either your line or their line has some little imbalance. The phone handset, all that that coil and all that stuff in there, that was to make sure that it was balanced. And one of the reasons why they charged you for extra phones was because that had a certain load. And when you picked that phone up, it had a DC loop that went to the central office and a certain impedance that caused the relay to close, and then you could dial the phone. And if you (laughs) added two phones... It was too low, and sometimes you couldn't, when you pick the phone up, it would never dial because it, would, it was a different impedance. So they had to come up and install a new phone and adjust it. It wasn't like a conspiracy, like you couldn't own a phone. It was because it had to the way the circuit worked. Okay, wow. That's why on the bottom of a phone it says ringer equivalent. That's what it was, is the ringer equivalent. One was a phone. Most of those solid-state ones were point one, so you could have 10 of them before it started affecting the line. So... Now, now you, ta- you see, all, the, all this stuff was going on. The, so AT&T started doing this to MCI. They started introducing these lines. And they, that's when they first came up with their computerized switching. So Because in the early days, phones were designed to have an address. And they were designed to stay at the house. You didn't take your phone number with you. No. It was programmed to your house in that location. So that's why you had the first yeah. two digits were like Windsor 77, yeah. you know, whatever. That was your, your area. Then it was in quadrants, and then it was in blocks, and then it was in streets, and then it was your house. That's what the phone number was. Yeah. Okay. It was Hollywood here. Yeah. H-O. H-O. And mine yeah. was W-I, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and it, that's, so that all started to move around. So they had to build switchers to allow them to do that because they would have to literally take a wire from your house, run it on a pole, run it over to this way, run over that way to your new house so you could have that same phone line. You know, it was a nightmare. So, yeah, and that's where these regulations came in. So MCI was beating the fuck out of these guys at their, at their own thing. They were, it was great, you know. So they started introducing these, these, these lines, extra lines. They started doing it with a computer. And so all the MCI, all their long-distance calls were really noisy and crappy because they would unbalance the line. And then they would rebalance them, and then they would take the wire out, and it would unbalance the line again, and it would sound like crap. So MCI hired somebody to go to work at AT&T and found this out and MCI sued them and for antitrust. And anytime you have an antitrust suit that's big, the government takes it over. Uh. And the government just says, you know what? You guys are too big. Was that why they broke them up? And that's what broke them up. Oh. So we were involved in that in the early days at Datatronics. We made a device that actually would check the phone line Echo back. And this was before computers. This is like CPM was like early computer stuff. We made these boxes that would test the line, balance the line with uh, inductors and capacitors. And by the time you got the phone up to your ear, it was dead 
quiet. And we were making these for MCI because they didn't know at the time that they were just being screwed. They just thought, well, this is the way it is. So when that all broke up, that's when all the long distance services started coming out because at that point they had to say competition can be anybody. So now you had all these long distance services and a lot of them would just contract and buy bulk long distance from MCI and then call it their own. Yeah. So now you had, you had to be able to access that stuff. So we made these phone things that had all the different phone long distance services and all the different languages. And we used a, a, a 312 mic pre, a 550A, and a, and a 525 compressor when we actually made the, the data really? for, the, for the things. So all they the, were API-based they, were all, they all sounded phone great. Systems. The voices on the phone sounded great. So we created the credit card slot so you could put a credit card through and make a long-distance call. And the early version of that was the thing we called payphone, or it was called uh, like coin pay or something, where it was the box. When you turn the key on the box, it would send the amount of money that it took into the central office so they knew how much money was in the box because the guys that would empty the phone boxes would take typically pocket a third to half the money. Okay. Yeah, so now it, so it was it was payphone. It was called payphone, and you'd turn it, and it would tell them how much was in there. Nice. So that was the first thing. We did the credit card thing. So when that happened, okay, that became huge because whoever had that had the long-distance market in payphones. So New Jersey Bell or, or Bell Atlantic or one of those companies wanted to buy that part of the company. From Datatronics. From Datatronics. They were going to sell the whole company to them. But because they had all the inventory of API, it was too much money. So they tried to sell API, uh, and they found that API didn't really have any owners because the original owners had gone bankrupt, and they had been liquidated. So that's when Saul Walker said to me, give him a bid walk away with it don't say a word there's no patents or trademarks <laughs> so i did and that's how i ended up with it that's how you got api what was yeah. the bid 300 grand and i got two tractor trailer loads full of shit and then that's the dumpsters thing that you made a joke about i got a call that, that there was a period of time when the the people at datatronics were really scamming atlantic research and what they had been doing is they were putting everybody's um everybody's codes for their billing codes, they were charging it to overhead and they were getting a lot of money and they were just basically dividing it up themselves. And one of my friends um, was the guy who came up with it, that figured it out. And so he, they would all make us submit our timesheets in pencil, which is against the law. Pencil? Pencil. So they could erase, Eraser. The, erase the code <laughs> and put the, the code they wanted in there. So he would make photocopies of uh. all of his his timesheets before he turned them in. And then he took all the timesheets after like about four months, sent them to Atlantic Research and said, compare these to what's on the record. And they went like, whatever, Bob, do this whenever you get a chance. And he'd come back and he'd say, you should see this. Everyone's different. Everyone was altered. And one day, oh boy, the whole place was wiped out. And the day before that, they laid us all off. Pink slip, huh? Yeah, pink slipped everybody. And the next day, they were all gone. And these new guys came in, and I got a phone call three days later that said, could you please come back in? And they put the original team all back together, and it was these new guys. They were awesome people. Um, and they, that's when we really started doing the audio stuff. Okay. And that's, that was the beginning of when we really started. We made consoles. We made all kinds of shit. And it was actually a lot of fun. And he's the guy who arranged to have me buy it because that's when they were all cashing out, you know. And I, I remember the day that he called me up. 
And he goes, guess what today is? And then you know, I get this email, and there's a picture of him holding these two equalizers. He says, these are the last two. <laughs> the last <laughs> he two. finally had yeah. sold through all those fucking equalizers. Well, I, I'll tell you, though, uh, I remember we had a bunch of stock that was here. And... Um, Mostly EQs. I mean, like boxes. And that was when the rumors now were out, and everybody yeah. hated the 558. We had hundreds of them, and I'd had a uh, an agreement in the contract that I could I could give them notice and say um, we're no, we no longer want to be a dealer, and we're returning unsold stock because this is about the time the company is just unraveling. Yeah, that was. So I gave them that notice. And I said, I want to send this stuff back to you. And they said, okay, well, we're terminating your your contract, but just keep it. Right. Yeah, it was oh, like, don't wow. send it back. That was right when it all fell apart. That's yeah. all fell apart. So I ended up getting like at least 50 or 100 EQs free. Did you sell them, obviously? Yeah, we though? sold them. Yeah. But I remember, the, you know, and then that was the other thing when that AMEC console finally went out the door. You had a yeah. picture of you yeah. on the truck. You were like, and that caption was, the agony is ended. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I, know. I was at Wally Hyder's a year ago, and at or it's called Hyde Street Studios in San yeah. Francisco now, and they were the ones that got that AMEC board. They yeah. bought the AMEC. Lucky them. Let's, let's rewind real quick. Paul, I have one quick question. Yeah. So in the 1960s, pretty much, and you could verify this, you didn't have factory-built consoles. It was all kind of custom. EMI, no. Capital, Sunset Sound, they were, you were building your no, consoles in the 60s. You had a choice of broadcast console or build or your build own. Your own. Why, do you remember why your father, Salvador Tutti Camerata, liked API? You know well, that's the, a good question. They were the only ones that made the they, cards. There, it wasn't yeah. a matter. They were they were the only. They made the three hundred cards, the three twenty five, which was a was you didn't a have an booster. option. They had a mic pre card. They had a phono preamp card. They had uh, that was if you wanted to build a console and you didn't want to get into the component level of building a console, uh-huh. you bought cards. Gotcha. And okay. you put them together. Well, it's you know we we only had two consoles here, up until the time we bought. An API-based console. One was the Allen Emic, the custom Longevin tube console, yeah. the Studio One that all you know, Doors Records, all those things were done on. And then the second console was the Sound Techniques, which was the first console, um, first console store-bought United, console, kind of right. First store-bought console to the United States out of England that People, was an actual console. It was an actual console, concept. and this yeah. is long before. Neve was in business. This was long before Trident was in business. And we got the first English console in the United States. That's verified, too. We did a big uh, podcast with Danny White of Sound Techniques and talked about the whole history of Sound Techniques. But Sunset Sound, your father went to England to yeah. get that console yep. uh, and brought the Sound Techniques board. And then met Jeff he, Frost. Yeah. And then uh, Electra Records bought the second one on yeah. the recommendation of 2D. We, sold, we brokered that to them. Yes. Electra. And it was yeah. sad because those, you know, most of those guys were guys like, um, you know, like your dad who wanted to build consoles, wanted to have a thing. And then, and Eric and people like that who wanted to build the consoles and, you know, like the Bushnell team or the Domitio team and stuff like that. Right. And those guys, they, they weren't necessarily businessmen. So they just, they basically, everybody in those days just fucked themselves into a corner when it came to business. And yeah. so that's why a lot of those companies didn't last as long as they could have. Because they weren't, like IBM, when they formed, they had a lawyer, an engineer, and a, and a bookkeeper, you yeah. know? These guys weren't like that. There were guitar players, bass players, and drummers. 
Let's touch down on Bob Bushnell because you both have an amazing relationship <clears throat> with the Studio One console. Right. Uh, from 1970 to 1984, we had a Bushnell built uh, console with yeah, API so components. Yeah, we had a uh, Bob Bushnell console that after the tube Langevin um, came out of Studio One, um, my father had contracted Bob Bushnell uh, to build an API based console for Studio One. And on that team, I think, I know Dean Jensen worked for him, he was one of the guys, but several others. Uh, so we got the you know the Bushnell console. I don't know how many they had built prior. Not many, one or two. Anyway, we got it in nineteen. I think we and they were all different it. too. They were all built. they were all different. How do you want this? You oh know? Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you want to build this? How many channels? Do you want a monitor section? Do you not? Uh, they built some arm service boards, radio kind of boards. Uh, anyway, so we installed that in nineteen seventy, and that yeah. remained in the room until about nineteen eighty four when. Uh, we put in the Sunset Industries custom-built yeah. console that's in there now. So 14 years, though, we're talking Doors LA Woman was mixed on it. I verified that. You're talking uh, Van Halen, Van Halen one. 1. Van uh -huh. Halen 1 was done on that Bushnell yeah. board. Yeah. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, uh, the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones, Exile Main Street Overdubs. Yeah. Exile. Yeah. <laughs> Zeppelin was in two. The Doobie Brothers. That, that would have been a Sound Techniques exactly. concert. Uh, yeah. Doobie Brothers. Doobie Brothers. Yeah, a lot of the Doobie Brothers records. That was a pretty much an L.A. sound, was that? That's that, exactly how you described yeah. it yesterday to me. Well, you yeah. had the New York sound, which was mostly 560s, and then you had the L.A. sound that was 558. That's too cool. That's kind of the way they were. So that board is tremendous. It lasts 14 years yeah. in that room. You decide that it's time to move it, move it along and get well, something we, different I going. Well, I decide that you know we, we're getting ready to put in the board, and we're like, what are we going to do with the board? And I go... Well, we need to sell the board, I guess. Um, and not to somebody here in Hollywood. No. My, my, my <laughs> edict, edict was, no, we need to move this thing out of town, long, far out of town. So it doesn't compete. I don't need to see my console down the street and them going, why do you need to go to Sunset Sound when you can come to us? <laughs> or, or like T-Bone was one of your top guys like Joe is. Well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, and then, you know, if he ended up with that console, you'd lose him in a second. You'd Gee, never did that happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 27 years later, maybe. Exactly. So, that, so we're getting to that. This is a we'll great get, around. Yeah. This is a yeah. ring around the rosy. It's hilarious. Yes. Mm -hmm. But who does that board go to then? The Bushnell board. So that board... Goes to Mr. Paul Wolf here. Yes, <laughs> incredible. Yeah, yeah. which um, I have that picture of us. Oh, it's oh, going yeah, up. Yeah, our I'm tan, sure. our <laughs> tan, our matching tan khakis. Yes, with the with the Wild with the manual that everybody claims never existed. Oh, it existed. I had it in my hand. Yeah, it existed. So you called me up and you said we need to get rid of this console and I can't sell it in town for obvious reasons. Yeah. And do you know anybody that would want it? I said, well, let me just check around, you know. And he wanted to go. I was in Virginia, so he wanted to go past New York. He didn't even want it in New York. He wanted in like he wanted in Nova like Scotia, North Carolina, <laughs> yeah. or somewhere on an island that's out there, you know, the uh -huh. Bermuda or maybe Triangle. in the, in the Atlantic, <laughs> right? Oh, and if you you know if you were a little less you know a little less conscious of money, you probably would have just thrown the fucking thing away. <laughs> probably, <laughs> Which a lot of people did. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was you know so. I talked to the guys because I was working at a studio at the time, too, at the same time. And uh, I said, you guys want to do this? So we had an APSI console, and it was dying. And I had modified the fuck out of it, and it was still dying. And so we thought, what the hell? 
And so I said, well, how much do you want for it? And he didn't want a lot for it. He just wanted it gone. Gone. <laughs> it's like out of town. How gone. Out of Dodge. You make yes. it disappear. So we put it in the fourth floor of a studio. I remember hoisting it through the window of the studio. And I remember the first time I used it, I cut a record on it and then came out here and mixed the record in Studio One. Oh, that's right. The God. day before Yes was going to do their nine... Oh, nine zillion years yeah, in the, Studio One with... Uh, yeah, and Yes. Big yeah. Generator. Yeah, well, they were yeah. in there for about nine months. No, it was the 90210 record. No, no, no. It was Big Generator. It was, was it? after 90210. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was that's the, the wrong the, number. It was the follow-up. It was the follow-up record. Yeah, and that was uh, it. Had all the racks of equipment in there. Yeah. Were like two or three Paul days. Paul Devillier of, he was said, the producer. He said, yeah. "Just, just come and use the studio, you know, and just whatever." So we mixed the record that we cut on the Studio One console and mixed it on that, which I don't think That's anybody cool. else was able to ever do, unless there was that overlap. I think yeah. I'm the only guy. I, who I think you're it. Cut the record. On cut it, the record on that board and then mixed waited and came back. Well, you did, we didn't wait because you had the board. We had the board. I cut right. it in my studio. And then came out and mixed it on that. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the absolute fattest fucking records I ever made in my life. God. I still listen to it today, and I just love the way everything sounds. What is it? It's a band called Push, and it was a local band that were just really great guys. And uh, I remember David Glover was our oh yeah our assistant glove daddy. Yeah, he was a great guy. He did anything we wanted. He was just so helpful, yeah. you know. And I mean, he was getting ready to go on the uh, nine month yes project. Right. You should have seen him after that. Yeah, I know. I'm sure he was like <laughs> Mr. CD. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, it, you know, it, we cut it on the record. And the thing about that console, and, and this is the way it was with a lot of those old consoles, you could, you, because, and also it had to do with the way you cut records. You cut records for keeps, you, you EQ'd them before you put them down. You, you know, there were a lot of things you did. So, when you played it back, you could put all the, rec the faders at zero and pretty much have a good starting point. And you pretty much could do that. You put all the faders at zero, throw a little reverb on the on the the, the drums, separate the overheads left and right, and you you just hit record and you had a record. I mean, that's how simple it was, you know. Yeah. And so we <clears throat> basically tracked that record on that console, and then I came out and mixed it on this one, and it just it just made you happy when you listened to it. <laughs> It was just so nice, you know, just the tone of everything and the way it all fit together. And the, and we used the, of course, we used the uh, the the freezer, the, the locker. The chamber? Reaver, the chamber, yeah. Um, <laughs> the chamber that had the dead rat that went to the doors. That chamber, that was yeah. on a previous, you got to look it up, look at the previous one, that interview with Jim That's Messina, and you'll understand the rat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we used that and uh, the plates and everything and an echo and all the, you know, tape echo and stuff. It was just... God, it was just such a great sound. But I, you know, it is. I, I realize that I think I'm probably the only guy that ever was able to do that because it's extremely it. cool. And then, and I knew full well that you didn't want to lose the console, so that stayed there for about seven years. And then I sold it to Tom Silverman in New York, Tommy Boy Records. Oh, that's right. There yeah, was, the, the, yeah. Remember that band, the Safety Dance, and yes. all that stuff. He bought it and put I it. I think studio. I forgot about that. Now I recall yeah. that it wasn't Michael Block, but it did no. get to Michael Block. It ended well when he sold it. Then Michael Block bought it, put it in storage, mm -hmm. and then put it oh. in his own studio um, in Philadelphia. And Shelly Yakis used to work there. Oh and wow! I, I remember taking some of my tapes up there and playing them. And Shelly said to me, "This is like you know, this is a guy. I, I love Shelly." More than any, I mean, he's just the greatest guy on the face of the earth. I love this guy. And 
and, he, and he's a mentor too. It's like when you're friends with somebody that you just go like, I can't believe I'm still, in, I'm sitting in the room eating lunch with somebody who likes me and he's the best guy I've ever, you know, I mean, it just, he, he's just an awesome guy. So he, um, I play this thing and I play this bass and he goes, he goes, he stops the tape and he goes, my God, he says, the next time I record bass, I'm calling you. And I thought to myself, God, what a compliment, you know? <laughs> and it was because it was tracked on the API, and then we mixed it on the same console. And yeah. when we played it back, it just sounded like it was really gold. Good, huh? So it stayed there for a long time, and then it went into storage. And then he put it on eBay, and guess who bought it? Yeah, so that's a that was... So T-Bone Burnett's... A, you but know, it was 27 or, years later, though. I know, but, but still, you know, he's he's a resident client here for like you know three ten, decades, right? For, I don't know, ten I mean, decades in a row. Yeah, no, for, three decades, forever, we years. Saw work here for I mean, he's years. doing you know, we're, oh brother, we're out thou. He's doing you know all kinds of incredible records here, and uh, he's all giddy one day, and he comes up to me, he goes, "Paul, I want to talk to you." I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. I wonder what T Bone wants. He goes, "You're not gonna believe this." And I go, what, believe what? And he's like, I'm going to buy your old console. And I'm like, and it, it didn't click at first. I'm like, the Amex? What? what, what? <laughs> well, yeah, like, what console? I mean, this is literally. It was 24 20 years. 20 something yes, years 24, 27 later. years later. Yeah. And I'm like, what console? Yeah, 25, 27. I don't know. He goes, the Studio One console. I go, the Studio One console back east? Get Paul Wolf on the phone. <laughs> Like, you son of a bitch. I mean, the minute he said that, I was just like, oh, here, there goes our client. <laughs> so that's what happened. Wow. Yeah, he, and he had it He had it for quite a few years. Put in his he, house? Put it in yeah. the uh, Brentwood house. Yeah. And uh, with our with our ex-engineer, Mike Persante, and they did some incredible records on it, like Raising Sand with... Uh, Alison Krauss and Robert Plant. I mean, tons of records on it. Now, the funny thing about that is when he decided to sell it, he put it on reverb. Yeah, I helped him out on that. I did an interview. Uh, he did an interview, and I did an interview. It's on our YouTube. And, yeah. On YouTube. And um, Well, there's an interesting thing about reverb versus eBay. And, I, and I'm not, I haven't been able to confirm this, but I believe eBay had some patents on the way their auction works. So if you sell something, you do a starting bid at 50, you, you bid $50, I bid, bid 100, it only goes up 7% or something. So it goes to like 54 or you know, something like that. And then if you build, if you put on a bid for 58, then I have 100, so it does your bid and then it increments back up and now I'm still the highest bidder. <coughs> But when it sells, it sells at whatever that point is. And I believe with reverb, whatever money you put down, when it sells, if that's the highest bid, you pay that amount. So Well, also, their commission structure, I was told from the person who, who listed it for, for T-Bone, that on, uh, reverb has a cap on commission. eBay doesn't. Right. So if it sells for half a million dollars, you pay that percentage on half a million dollars. Reverb doesn't do that. They have right. a, a high-end cap. I don't know what it is. But Maybe they're, 50 they're, grand or whatever it is. Their um, auction process, I don't believe, is incremental. 
Yeah. I believe if you put down, like a lot of times, if you want to buy a piece of equipment on eBay and you say, look, I'll pay 250 for this thing. Yeah. So you just put a bid on 250 even though it comes up at a dollar. So whatever it sells for, if it's under that, you win. If it goes up to 250 and someone bids above you, you don't win. And you say, well, I would only pay 250 for it anyway. Right. So this guy decides that he's going to go on vacation or something. So he puts down probably a joke, 500 grand as a joke. Oh, wow. He goes on vacation, comes back. Guess what? You won the auction. Oh, great. 500 yeah. grand. I'm sure T-Bone probably shit himself. Well, I forget his name, but it he's... It was 600, 640, wasn't it? It's something. Just, yeah, it was... It's and guy, 15 minutes. Um, he, he was buying... I wish I could remember his name. He's building a, a really intense complex in upstate New York. And um, um, he made all his money in medical, I believe. Yeah. And, anyway, so... You know, he bought five sound techniques, you know, Sunset Sound Edition EQs. I mean, oh, wow. this guy was buying everything. So, um, you know, for him, I don't think it was yeah. a huge expense. That's yeah. incredible. But T-Bone came out on top. Oh, yeah, he definitely came out <laughs> on top of that. I mean, talk about investment. You know? I mean, for holding that for and making incredible records for 27 years and then selling it for 10 times what he paid well, for it. For know? making all the records that he made on it. Oh, no kidding. And then all the records he couldn't make on it and then owning it and making all the records he put on it and then selling it. He's definitely got his money out of that yeah, console. He, yeah, that's, yeah, he's... You that's know, we hilarious. need to clarify something. Every We investigate Van, ha- Van Halen religiously, but... Van Halen 1 was done on that board, which was a Bushnell. Yep. No other Van Halen was done on a Bushnell. Everyone thinks that there was a Bushnell in Studio 2 here at Sunset Sound. That is not true. It's Every not publication writes that. What records or what console was done in, in Studio 2 and what did Van Halen do? Van Halen 2, Women and Children, Fair Warning, Diver Down. That would have been. So that was a custom API console. So after the success of the Studio 1 console, the Bushnell console, um, the sound techniques, I think, was having some issues of part part problems. That's what I remember. We had the the talk. I think I remember was that they couldn't get certain parts. It was because it had to come from England, and and, and consoles need maintenance. So my father. In those felt, days, you didn't have FedEx. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. It was a boat, U.S. mail. Yeah, or yeah, not even necessarily a plane. So my father made the decision. Let's get another API-based console, uh, but a custom console. So Bushnell, I believe, was out of business by then. So I think he hired, this is where it's a little murky, but I think he hired some of the people from um, from Bushnell. I think Dean Jensen was one of them, and there were a couple other guys. And uh, in a, anyway, we ended up building the console across the street at Crossroads, at Crossroads of the World. And uh, so it started out as being built by someone else, which I can't remember, but then we took it over. And so it was basically a Sunset Sound built console that we hired people to build. Yeah. Gotcha. And it was very similar to the Studio One console and the Studio Three console. And then you had the the Studio One console, you expanded it, and that's when Domitio... That's when Domitio came in. That was originally a 24-channel board, and that was just too small at the time or it became too small um so we needed to expand it to 32 tracks which frank did that and that's how i think that was our first association with frank and then when we built studio three we went back to frank and we said we want you to build a console for us 
because we were happy with his work. And he could, yeah, and he was actually finishing things. Yes, very admirable yeah. guy. Um, no, I really like Frank a lot. Yes. He used to buy a lot of EQs from me. We want him to come in. Uh, Brian Key, who's been trying to get me to get a hold of him, I think his granddaughter, granddaughter. emails us sometimes. Yeah. yeah, you might have to go out there, but I would definitely, I would definitely do that. Yeah, he's he, got to be in his nineties now. He is one of those guys that you want to get on tape because I mean that that was the problem with with Les Paul. He would tell great stories when you were one on one with him. I, mean, I went up to yeah. visit him at his house, and the things that he said were just unbelievable. But if you put a camera on him, he would soften him a lot because he you know didn't want to offend anybody. Sure. Yeah. But he was he was an un, unfiltered guy in one to one, and I just loved him. And Frank is the same way. And Frank is I, I think Frank's from the East Coast. Cause he's he, from Cuba. He's a Cuban. Cuban, right. Because yeah. he, but he has this kind of like, ah, you know, yeah. what a bunch of fucking <laughs> dumbasses. You know? but, but just a knowledgeable guy, great guy, knew how to do everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, big, huge Formica panels, engraved Formica <laughs> panels. And That's right. Stuff like that. And, yeah, he was, uh, he was good. He built a console for Prince. Whoa, Domenio? Yeah. Oh, because he wanted to mimic. Oh studio. yeah, when he wanted they, to mimic. When he mimics yeah. Studio, studio Three, right? But the funny thing is, is that and anybody who ever worked with those guys, it, Prince was just a pain in the fucking ass. You know, I mean, yeah. he's however nice he was, great songs and stuff like that, but he could be a real pain, perfectionist, pain, pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, perfectionist is yeah, except that he fucked himself many times being so perfectionist that he would forget elements. So it got to the point where Frank said. All right, look, you tell me exactly what you want, and that's exactly what I'm going to build, period. Mm-hmm. And they went, okay, fine. And they listed everything. So the console shows up, and they are put tracks up on it and stuff like that, and they're running, you know. And, and it, it might have even been Susan. It might have been the one. Susan hey, Rogers. Yeah, that discovered the fact that it had no solo bus <gasps> because um, he didn't ask for one. <laughs> and it was like, you wow, said that's cool. to do exactly what I tell you to do. Yeah, no and recommendations. That's exactly what I did. Yeah, and so so they had to go put a solo bus in, and that was that was kind of one of those kind of things, Incredible. and that's the way Frank was. It's like you want to be a dick, okay? You tell me what you want, and that's exactly what I'm. You gonna got do. it, wow. and you get a console without a frame because he didn't ask for a frame. <laughs> but he was Studio B at Paisley Park is a replica of Studio Three here at Sunset Sound. Ish, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean they hired some of the same people. They remember yeah. they're measuring the room and the high. Peggy was involved stuff. in that too. Yeah. Do, you, do you think it could be the songs that did well? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean just I'm just saying, throwing that out. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you know as a plus for us, it's a great thing that there is that witchcraft that goes along with it because then you can always say, oh yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, Brent Averill tried to destroy everybody because it was like, oh yeah, the op amps are different. Don't use those op amps, and it turned out to be the transformers that were really different because API had like seven different op amps. You know, it was a good op amp, and there were many versions of it. But it was just a good op amp, you know. That's it. Yeah. But the transformer changed dramatically, yeah. and that's what made the difference in the sound in those days. And that's why you guys put that little snuffer circuit on the output of the transformers to kind of calm down that ring that it had, you know. And we were we discovered that when I owned API, we discovered that, and we turned that into we figured out what it was, and then corrected it, and basically in like 96 got back the original sound back in the transformers right. it took it took me 10 years to figure out what it was because it was never written down anywhere it was one of those kind of things where you order something from a company you say we want this many windings and this type of core we want these colors coming out and we want the holes to mount it in this position and blah 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 and they do you don't specify how you want you tell them how you want the windings done but they're going to wind it themselves and they used a certain type of wire 
that they always used that was never in a spec. And so when we went back to have the Transformers made, they made them with what they had now instead of what they had then because it was never specified. Again, we'll make it exactly the way you say it. And so that's what... You know, that's what it was. And yeah. they had made the Transformers were slightly different in, in the way they were wound. So we finally figured out a way to simulate the way it used to be because that old technology was no longer available. So we had to figure out a new way to do it, and we did. And that's how they're made now, and that's one of the reasons why there's people that offer Transformers with the Litz windings or not the Litz windings because the Litz winding thing is why it works. You know, Litz wire is the is the why the wire is twisted in your extension cord is because it allows the cable to have some bendability and strength and stuff like that. We found that insulated Litz wire works really well to make transformers. And so there's a lot of people that are doing that now because they all kind of discovered it, you know. But there was a big thing in the in the eighties and the late seventies actually, there was a big thing where a lot of the audio transformers in the world changed because these companies that made this certain type of wire just kind of went away. Because when solid state came out the, the transformers and the tubes and stuff kind of faded for a while until they came back. But at that point, a lot of those companies went bust because they weren't yeah. making the quantities, you know. Let's move into our third act. Paul Wolf, you build up API, sell it off. You build up Tonelux, sell it off. Your new company, Fix Audio Designs, and Sunset Sound owner Paul Camerata have collaborated on a preamp. Yeah. And have been for some time now. But Yeah, it's 10 years, actually. Tell us. We're coming on the 60th anniversary. We originally That's released right. it as the 50th, the 50th anniversary. anniversary. Well, what you know, because of the popularity of the 500 um, module series. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, they wanted to do a 500 module. He had a guy that gave him some initial drawings, and there were some, uh, you know, what I considered to be issues with it. And I said, "Well, why don't you just let me do it?" So he says, "All right, do it." And we went around and around with the panel, and we came up with... Uh, there was a new process that was being done. It was um, printing on metal, color printing on metal. But you, Paul Camerata, were getting a lot of interest for people asking about a preamp. Oh, well, yeah. You wanted, I mean, you wanted the Studio One preamp. You know, everybody Can, that yeah. came in here, you know, for decades, you know, since probably the 80s, they were like, oh, this mic pre, I love this mic pre. You know, I, I want to buy one. And yeah. I'm like, well, we don't sell them. They're in our consoles. <laughs> and they're like, well, can't you build us some, you know, don't you have any parts? Can't you just build us some? And I go, well, what do we put them in? They're, they're not built for a rack. They're, they're on a, you know, Plus external. Plus 24 volts. Yeah, they're on yeah. an external <laughs> power supply. And, you know, I must have had, oh, I don't know how many requests. So, lo and behold, fast forward, that's when we collaborated. And I said, you know, it's time to repackage the design in the exact same original design with the exact same original transformer. Notice his eyes and the yeah. way he's saying that. Yeah. <laughs> am but, I clear at yeah. what I am it, saying? I, yeah, <laughs> it, it has to be original, otherwise I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, but we were fortunate. We, um, we were fortunate to be able to do it. Uh, we ended up using the same 990s, like the Studio One console. And we got Cinemag, which was Rickenbacker. Reichenbach. Reichenbacher. Rickenbacher, I think, is, Ricken, a, is a basketball That's a guitar. Team. Yeah, a guitar. Rickenbacher is a yeah. guitar. That's right. Yeah, yeah Reichenbach. <laughs> Reichenbach. Uh, Reichenbach. So we got Reichenbach to, uh, they had the file. They had the Sunset Sound file. Yeah, we went and, and contacted and them. And they wow, pulled it know. out, and they said, oh, yeah, we see what we did here. Um, we'll build you 
some transformers. And that, by that time, it was now it was now called Cinemag. Cinemag. Tom Reichenbach had taken it over, and he had David Guerin with him. And then, really shockingly and unfortunately, uh, Tom passed away. He was on you know getting a heart operation, and it didn't. It just stopped. Uh, it was a shock to the whole industry that mm. in manufacturing, you know. But David has done just a amazingly good job, and he. Went back and found it because I know that the f- Jensen the had no record of what whatever it was. They well, had we were they, buying them then. I mean, back in the day, we didn't buy them from Reichenbach. No, because they made them for Jensen. Yeah, yeah, they made them for Jensen. They were a subcontractor. Yeah. So we bought them through Jensen, but Jensen doesn't uh, associate with Reichenbach anymore that I'm aware of. No, because they make their own and they're they make different. their own yeah. windings, their own transfers. So we didn't go to them. Yeah. So we went to Cinemag, which was the proper way to go. Right. And David pulled up. There were two versions of the original drawing. There was one that was done with a real thin rice paper, and then there was one that was um, done with um, um, a regular type of paper, you know. And so he he wound a couple of both. Yeah, we got a few testers. We got a few testers, and Joe was Joe was the, Joe Ciccarelli helped he us out immensely. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. And well, Joe, we used his magic know, ears. To goal, yeah, make goal, sure. and his you know Joe's goal was to be able to use an old one on an overhead and a new one on an overhead, and you couldn't tell the difference. I mean, that's what that's the extent that we went with this. Yeah. Because you know, wow. everybody says, oh, it's just like it used to be. And one of the problems with that, like the pull text, and this is what I told Steve Jackson early on, I said, when you do this, get ahead of this because it's going to kill you, is that when, you, when these people come out with these pull texts, they try to make them sound like the ones that, that are out now. The ones that are out now are fifty years old. Yeah. yeah. So when Steve was when he was coming out with his, they were going to be like they were when they were new, and they're not going to sound like the ones they have now. And I told him to get in front of that because if he advertised that as a feature, people think it's cool. If you don't, they're going to say, "Oh, they don't sound like the old ones." And you get all these idiots that just destroy you, you know. Um, and and that's the, that's what happens. It, yeah. it, it's a rumor based industry. So that's you know. So we wanted to make sure that when we did this. Somebody didn't go like ah, they're and I don't think to this day there has been one negative comment about them not sounding like the way they originally. Yeah, did. they're they're about as true to the original as they possibly could be. Yeah, and anytime there's a there's a component that gets discontinued or something like that, we go into like this shit panic mode to see what we can do to find the original one, and we the pots we just that just happened the pots became. Um, like exorbitant, so I incorporated the pots that I use with my fixed consoles, uh-huh. and I figured out a way to make them do exactly what they did before. And so, and we did change the the original mute circuit because one of the things that we did is when you pop in forty eight volts or you pop in line, there's always a big thump, and if yeah. you have it turned up loud, it can blow your speakers. So I have a circuit in there when you hit forty eight volts, it immediately mutes the mic pre and then comes back up again. And we were using an LDR. And we did find that the LDR, the differences in the LDRs, could change the way the Plus mic sounds. Plus, the, the LDRs... Um, They're illegal. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Rojas thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But over time, they they kind of uh, fail. Because they they're fade. a switch. They're a, like a... They're right? a it's, it's a cadmium cell with an LED over it, and the yeah. cadmium d- deteriorates after yeah. a while. And it, they start becoming less of what they are. It's kind of like us as we get older, you know. <laughs> but big for yourself. <laughs> so we so I took that out and I replaced it with a FET. And now the FET actually turns off like yeah. you know, it turns off with the rail voltage. So you have to hit 
a peak of greater than minus 15 volts, which is literally impossible to turn that FET on to interfere. We did that, and, and we tuned a few things up. and then, But we did find this process of printing, and we decided to put a sunset on the front panel. And yeah. it's a color sunset. And I now have one of these printing machines. I can do yeah. this. I can print on metal. I do that now. I print my modules. You uh, sent me home graphics. with that, the panel from when I was in Nashville last week, or last yeah. month, I guess. So that's uh, you know that's what makes it kind of unique. And we made an extra thick panel, yeah. which you know is cool. And then the knobs are recessed into it a lot, like the fixed consoles are recessed into the into the panel. It looks really nice, you know. And in <clears throat> a few weeks, probably when this airs, we'll have almost fifty of them that we'll have available for sale, right? Mark the beginning of that statement so they can be edited out. <laughs> what I'm committing to whatever I can ship you. Every the problem we've had is that everybody everybody has been like doing anything they can. I feel like a drug dealer buying parts these days. I mean, I'm literally yeah. buying 150 of these, and you know, I I typically buy reels of 5,000 of resistors and and spools of 5,000 capacitors and stuff like that, and I've had to scab buy shit. You know, because the, the, because of the this, you know the delivery chains in this country are yeah just, the disruption just out of China too right yeah well it wasn't as much of them it was the guys in L A that seemed like they decided they were going to play a little game with everybody and slow <laughs> things down and it backed up so quickly that they they're just now digging out of it and then you had COVID so you know that that sort of thing so um, we get you know the transformers we get delivered in in quantities that you know we're getting a new batch on the third or fourth of may and we're going to build the next run of them and we'll have more than we did the last time so yeah that's the you know that's what we're looking for so yeah my goal is to give you as many as we can you know because that's what we want to do yeah we had 10 and then they went in one day there. yeah right i know and then you had another 10 and they went in one day uh to learn more about those you can go to sunsetsoundstore.com What's the name of uh, your website for Fix Audio if people want to learn more or get Fix in touch Audio with Fix Audio Designs with an S, fixaudiodesigns.com. And we actually were the only person in the world, the only company in the world that makes an immersive analog console that does full, full-on Dolby 714 mixes. Mm. And no matter what anybody tells you about the Dolby format, all the, all the film people, all Apple... All the people, all they want is a 714. They don't want 1114. They don't want 916. They reduce it down to 714. That's what they want. They're happy with that. Film, they can do as many as they want. But just stop. Yeah. Okay? Just stop. <laughs> just stop it. Um, I've got three of those consoles, and they're actually pretty cool. I mean, when you... When you mix in in a discrete bed instead of using objects, it just when you do the binaural thing, it just sounds huge. It's amazing how good it sounds. You know, in analog consoles, there's always been this you know discussion of you know what you know do it in the box, out of the box, and stuff like this. This particular thing, this particular experience with an analog immersive console, is amazing how good it sounds. You know, wow. and it's uh, you know immersive is going to make it because of the binaural aspect of it that you don't have to have a big speaker system. I have one of those Sennheiser sound bars, and we were watching um, the um, the Money Heist, and there was a scene where they had noise coming from above them on the second floor behind them. Wow! And we were sitting there watching. And I asked my wife if she had the dishwasher on, 
And this was all coming from a sound bar in front oh, of me. It actually had sound coming from behind me. Wow. So they've got that dialed in. That's so incredible. it's not going to be like 5-1 where you had to put speakers all over the place. And if it wasn't for Bose, there probably wouldn't be strong because Bose came up with those little teeny speakers that your wives would allow the husbands yeah, to put up. Yeah, you can put those up. You can yeah. put those up. Just make sure they're white, you know. I mean, so, yeah, it's a cool format. It's definitely something that's not, you know, it's not going to disappear like all the other stuff. It's actually, you know, they've got, you've got, you got the Dolby Atmos format. You've got the Sony 360 format. You've got the RO3D format. Um, those are all viable formats that sound nice. And for for music, those types of things have an ambience to them that's actually very nice. There's not a lot of psychedelia going on in the upper speakers. It's just ma- mainly ambience. But it does give you a really interesting experience. Wow. You know? Did you design producer Greg Wells a console? Yeah, Greg, uh, Greg bought an immersive console. Nice. Um, we started out with that right at the beginning of COVID. Oh, wow. So his studio was basically shut down. My dis- my um, you know delivery chain was shut down, so we both kind of like had this like ebb and flow that was synchronized. So when his studio was kind of ready to have the console put in, I was ready to ship the console. It was it, it I mean it was like, it just dragged on, but it'd be like, how you doing? Oh, we're still closed. You know how you doing? We're we're still closed. You know, we just went up and down, but it all synchronized, and I was there the last couple of days, and it, you know, I mean. He's a he's just a really nice guy. I mean, just a phenomenal yeah. guy. He said he'd and come on the show. Uh, we'll have he to would. Get that going. Oh, he yeah, would. And, yeah, he would it. do that in a minute. He's a, he's he's got some great stories too. And the history. I mean, the guy can play every instrument on the face of the earth. Yep. You know, um, but he's just a really nice guy. And the studio is great. It's just a great studio. You know, it's cool. That's awesome. So yeah, he's got great kids. His kids are like all entertainers. His wife is a sweetheart, and you know, he's got he's got one daughter that is just. The, the most amazingly it's like how old are you you know she's just so electric you know it's just great there's it's nice when you when you when your kids are raised around music around the creation of music they become creative my daughter is very creative my older daughter is very creative our son is very creative you know my brother and i both are very creative my parents because they were both in big bands they knew about your dad yeah my mom was in the only all-girl band they toured around with the USO and CBS during World War II. Ooh. My dad was in um, a big band that toured around. Um, he told me stories of, like one story where they, yeah, they see, remember the old thing about the guy with the trench coat was always the drug dealers? He said, that's because they were. Yes, <laughs> they would they go, were, they'd yeah. go into a, a <laughs> club, and if you saw a guy with a trench coat on, you knew that guy had the drugs, and on one side he had drugs, and, and which most of them were legal. And the other side, he had like eight millimeter porn and you know stuff like that. It was just, I mean, it was just like unbelievable. But he One said, "Stop shopping." Yeah, and and the, you know the the guys in the band that smoked pot would actually take a thumbnail and put the pot outside the window of their hotel because the maids would steal it. The you maids know? would yeah. take. It. Yeah, and so you know, but he told me that these guys did, and he said that he said like Glenn Miller. He said Glenn Miller. The what created the Glenn Miller sound was their their apparently their lead trumpet player was an alcoholic or something. I you know I'll probably get sued for saying this, but there that it was like it, it, like he fell down a stairs and busted his mouth up, and so that night the clarinet player had to play all of the trumpet lead parts, and it created this sound that was unique. Oh, so that's st- stuck. It stuck, and it kind of became his signature sound, you know. Oh. And so the same thing happens nowadays that happened back then. Yeah. 
you know that's incredible yeah i mean th those are the kind of things but they the stories that they told and when i told them when i first when i was really young and i said i'm going to go out on the road with a band most of your parents would go out wow. you know yeah. my mom and dad both said oh you're gonna have a great time you're gonna love it that's cool yeah it was great it was a lot of fun but you know i, used, I went to bed every night with my dad playing saxophone and you know um well, did you grow up in wisconsin or michigan 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 that's yeah. right so we're gonna be um, moving there too. So. <laughs> Here we go. Anita. But it's a, but it's it's a, uh, it was just a great upbringing. I loved my parents. My dad used to race cars, so I was like the youngest. I was actually in his pit crew. I've got pictures of me sitting in the early Formula One car, you know, sitting in, in the driver's seat of it, you know, and you can see this look on my face like your head, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I used to fix all the SU carburetors. SU carburetors had this long needle valve. Oh yeah, and, like in Mini Coopers. Yeah, in a Mini Cooper. So oh, they the would BMC they would take yeah. um, they would take the oil out of them. They put brake fluid in them because brake fluid was really thin, and so they'd pop open real quick. So when they punch it, they get this boost of gas, you know. And taking it apart, a lot of times they'd bend that needle valve, and that needle valve had to be dead center or it wouldn't work. So I was the guy at the pit crew. These guys would come over and say, "Can you?" Uh, can you straighten this out? And I'd sit there, and I was like 11, and I'd sit there, and I'd, you know. Oh, yeah. Jeez. And straighten it out and give it back to him. And it was like, you know, and I ended up getting a, a card, a certification card from the SCCA. I was the youngest uh, licensed SCCA timer. So I'd go to racing events with my dad, and I'd walk up to the, they had a big area that had the timers in it, and everybody had a clipboard and a stopwatch, and you'd do the, you'd, do the lap and then when the guy would go by you'd write it down and then you'd pick up a phone and you'd call their pit crew and you'd say you know two minutes and 43 seconds and then you'd hang up and they were and they would show it on a blackboard they would hold the blackboard out mm -hmm. that would say 237 let him know how he's doing let him know how he's doing right. you know i saw days right. of thunder because there was no radio <laughs> back then yeah and my dad was uh my dad actually used to race and his last race was in a porsche um, for a, a racing team that he, his first big race, he had worked his way up to this, was um, for the um, Can-Am, the IMSA series, and it was the Canadian-American race, and he went up there, and it was a big deal. You know, it was huge. You know, and he, he was, like, racing, and he was, like, the last guy in the pole position because he was the, the youngest, <laughs> the newest racer. And he was racing this guy's car, and he was working his way up. And he was, like, third place, second place. And then he would come in, and it was, a, it was an eight-hour race, so they'd alternate. And his partner, who owned the car, would, wouldn't, like, push it as hard. And he would fall back to, like, 15th place. And then my dad would go in, and he'd go forward, and he'd get back up to, like, second or third place. And the guy kept on putting the blackboard, rev it down, rev it down, rev it down. And finally, my dad just, he pulls into the pit crew, throws the keys in the guy's face, and says, go fuck yourself. And that's the last time he ever raced. He would have won that race. Really? And it would have been his dream. Oh. Yeah, and this guy just robbed it because it was too chicken to push his own car. Have you guys ever drove together? Paul used to race cars. Paul had a 914.6 that when I first met Don't him, still have which it? I still have. He yeah. still has, but when I he first met year. him, uh, yeah, probably for the first time. Because when I I've first met him, him he had just bought it, and he gave it to this guy to rebuild. And it I was, think it was 1983. 1983, and then mm -hmm. it was like, what, five years ago, you say, hey, I got my car back. <laughs> That's that's correct. 30, 32 years to get the car. Right. And yeah. then you said Finished. to me, you said to me, yeah, I, I'm not sure I really like the way it runs, so I'm going to give it back to him. I go, are you nuts? I said, if you do that, put me in your will. Yeah. I want that it car. It wasn't back. It's It was there for Where'd a Where'd you get bit. it from? I bought it, you know, uh, <coughs> I bought it in 1983. Um, it was 13 years old then. I had owned a couple of ones before that. But, oh, okay. um 
I wanted to do a ground up uh, restoration on the car, and unfortunately, ground up restorations can get you know mired in you know time, time, and <laughs> time I mean, and- it's not so much the money; it's just like you know getting a, a person motivated to finish it. So my buddy mechanic, you know, it sat in the sat in his shop for like thirty years. It had to be rebuilt again. It it <laughs> had to be repainted three times while it was there because it got dinged up or cracked or whatever. And I had a six, and we, you know, I had a, I had probably twenty two different Porsches throughout my life. And wow. I had a I had a six that actually had the six was taken out of it and had a, a blueprinted four in it, but it was still it but was still crazy. What was so cool? About this car is that all the ignition, the injection, injection. So you know most of these nine fourteen sixes, well, not most, all of them were carbureted. They had Weber carbs, which is what I had. But the trick motor to have was a mechanical injected Bosch pump motor, and those came in like the nine eleven E and S, and especially the Carrera two point seven RS that wasn't mm-hmm. sold in this country. And uh, that was a 73 model, and that was a, it's an extremely coveted car now. I mean, they go for millions of dollars, those cars now. It's crazy. Wow. Guess who had one? So oh, he, had a, he had a Euro Carrera-motored car, which was basically a 2.7 RS motor. And the whole car was an RS, but the guy went through all the U.S. modifications and completely ruined it. Oh, yeah. no. Did he? Okay. So... You took off the injection probably because it was hard to maintain. It was uh, impossible to yeah, maintain. Yeah, it was impossible yeah. to maintain. That's why I got it so cheap is because it didn't run. Yeah, so he took <laughs> off the injection, and he put on Weber's or something, right? He put, yeah. He probably put on Weber's, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't know this. So I'm just talking to him one day, and he goes, eh, how's your car going? And I go, well, you know, it's getting there. We're starting to build the motor. and But I'm looking for injection for it. And he goes, well, what kind of injection? And I said, well, you know, Bosch pump mechanical injection. He goes, well, I got that. I just want. I, I, I mean, one. this is like you know that it, it was like what? a hen's tooth to find it in the eighties. Yeah. It's impossible now. I mean, those pump mo- those pump motors go for like twenty thousand. Oh. Yeah, you know, just, he gave just me the for pump. It? Tell him. So no, well, I, didn't, I I gave you what you wanted. So I said, you got it. I, he goes, yeah, it's in a box somewhere. And I go, well, what do you got? He goes, well, I got the pump and the lines and. I go, do you have the stacks? And I go, he goes, I don't know if I got the stacks, but uh, maybe he did. I don't remember. But he had the pump. So I said, well, what do you want for that? And he goes, I don't know, seven fifty, I think, or something. I think it was two grand. Is what was it, it that? Yeah, I don't even remember. Grand, yeah. yeah, it was a couple, whatever it was. I was like, okay. Yeah, to contain his enthusiasm. I was like, you know. So, um, yeah, so I get, I get this injection from him, and I, I drag it over to my mechanic, and he's just like, where did you get this? And I go, well, I had this friend of mine that had it. And he goes, oh, my God. He, he just goes, had it? You are, How do you just have one of these? He goes, you are so fortunate. So then we had to drill out the heads for the injectors. And he did all that stuff, you know, over a period of, you know, decades. Yeah, decades. But, um, Quickly. But um, we sent the pump out. You know, there's this place, Precision Pump. It's up in uh, Oregon course. or something. <laughs> yeah. And um, anyway, we got it. We, we, you know, they completely went through it. Put in a uh, a two seven cam in it for for a Carrera motor, so basically I have a 
a Carrera RS motor in that six, which wow. to a lot of people they don't know what's that. Yeah, but it's it's an extremely rare and expensive motor. And that the motor I had was fast as fuck. I remember yeah. taking Hank Santacola. He came out to visit me one oh, time. Oh, yeah, Hankster. Yeah, yeah. Henry. Yeah, Henry. He was he was an awesome mm-hmm. guy. He uh, he came out to visit, and I picked him up at the airport in that car, mm-hmm. and he was shocked. It was, it was faster than his tar- his turbo, and I just had carbs on it. But that car had a limited slip rear end. It had all kinds of weight reduction things in it. The guy had modified it to meet U.S. Every time I registered that car, I had to bring in the book oh, and go through it with the DMV. They would only hassle. do one year at a time. Because it didn't have the right VIN. Probably. didn't have the right VIN. And it was, so I had to go through it every year. And they would wow. always pass it, but it was like a day. You'd make an appointment. It'd be the same guy. This is back in Virginia? <clears throat> yeah. And because it was a gray market was that a, car. Was that a coupe or a Targa? It was a Targa. Targa. Yeah, yeah. it was very rare. That's but, a really rare on a Targa. Right, but because it was modified, it was like it was polluted, so it didn't matter. You know? Yeah. The sad thing about that car, and it had the limited slipper what, end. What which, year was that, 75? It was 75, 70, I think, so, 70. yeah. I think 76 was the last year they yeah. built that motor. And it had the limited slip rear end, yeah. so you would go around a corner, you could hear it yeah. go clunk, 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 like that, yeah. which the new ones, they didn't have that. They were just regular. So, I mean, when I punched it, both wheels well, grabbed. It's, yeah, it's it's posy in both yeah. wheels. I mean, I've got that on the six. but Yeah, and that was very yeah. rare as well, you know. So I sold it to a guy, and he let it sit outside. Oh, God. And one day he went to, he sold it to this girl and she parked it in some grass and it went on vacation for a month and came back, opened the door, and it folded in half. Holy oh, cow. And so she had it towed to a junkyard. The engine, I mean, the transmission, everything. went. They can imagine I mean, the junkyard guy going, oh, my God. Ching, ching. Do you know what that car would be worth now restored with the mechanical injection? Probably Million? about two fifty. Two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. Yeah, easy two fifty. Yeah. Holy shit! Yeah, I got I really got fucked yeah. out of the injection system. The guy who bought it, yeah, from I me, know. Yeah, really low. Well, at least I put it to good use. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it took him thirty years. <laughs> yeah. I know. Now I'm like almost at too old to drive the car. You know? I, I put it to good use. What was the? I'll road? make sure I get my mechanic to watch this program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What was the Roadster Speedster in like the f- late fifties, early sixties? Oh, oh like the three fifty six. The uh, yeah. yeah, the three fifty six Speedster, fifty five, fifty six. That's a cool car. Yeah, that's a that's a multi multi million dollar car now. And okay. they they wow. look great, but they're they're really pigs. Oh, I know. Yeah, they're, they're just they're just, they're, up, they're just upside sexy. down bathtub. Yeah. You know, that's why they call them the bathtub. I, yeah. it, actually, my the drummer in the band that I recorded in that that whole thing, he bought one. For like eight thousand dollars, a real like one, that. yeah, a real oh, one, God, and he was real. restoring it. Yeah, he had just put in all the no brand new carpet kit in it. Yeah, and he was welding on the bottom and caught it on fire. Holy shit! Oh no, and it and went up, burned the car up. Yeah, oh, my burned God. it up. But it was like really good shape. There's so many replicas. They use the VW, <laughs> oh, they, yeah, right? they use, or they use uh, you know fiberglass bodies and all. That. I mean. Uh, James Dean had that was the original car. Oh yeah, thing, that's right. Before he got the 550 Spider. The Spider. Yeah, yeah there was a guy. Died in. My dad was really good friends with a guy who used to race a Spider. And um, wow. Yeah, and he was a pretty well-known race car driver, and they, he they used to always come over to our house. It's just shocking these. You think back and the, you see these guys. You know, there was a guy with a 904 Porsche driving in my neighborhood. You know, drive it to work. You know, yeah, like. <laughs> 
Like, really? Or a GT, uh, a GT, yeah. GT40. There was yeah. a guy in my neighborhood. It's just like driving these things on a daily basis. You know, back then they were $5,000 cars. Yeah. Or whatever. You know, now they were, they're... They no value. Now, now they're, you know, seven plus figures. Yeah. Millions. But, the, you know, the same thing happened with audio stuff. There was a period of time when... Oh, yeah, like yeah. If I had every... I had... I had a th- uh, 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 Gibson, uh, the the hollow body, the three. What was the three thirty five? Yeah, I had a three thirty five that I found out like a few months ago was like, oh my god, they only made like a hundred of those, and I had it and I bought it for X amount of dollars, sold it. My dad bought an ESO Revolta for thirty five hundred bucks. Yeah, fixed a dent in it and sold it for 5500 bucks and thought oh my god I made a killing I made a killing <laughs> a friend of mine sent me a picture of my dad's car at an auction it sold for 280 grand wow yeah interesting story yeah. you know haggerty yeah sure okay frank haggerty was one of our buds when we grew up he was he a, was he before was, he was an auctioneer he was a he was the he's the guy that does all the insurance stuff Oh, oh. Haggerty Insurance. Oh, the guy ha- the, oh, Haggerty, the Haggerty race cars and the Haggerty, okay. all the, the Haggerty auctions and all that stuff, okay? Yeah. He started out collecting cars and had a, he had his insurance company that did household insurance and car insurance, and he started insuring people's cars, you know? Yeah. And uh, I grew up with those guys. We, used to, we spent every weekend at their house. And when I went to my senior prom, he gave me a restored, like, 1938, like, Cadillac or Chevy or whatever, burgundy with a brown leather, big, huge, the furry, like, <laughs> seats. And, I mean, he gave me one to take to the prom that he had just that's restored. Cool. Yeah, and this is the guy that I grew up with. Well, it turns out that's the same family. And while I was visiting my friend, <clears throat> his daughter, yeah. they had just gone public. They were worth, like, $3.2 billion. And she slipped and fell in her living room, hit the corner of the counter, and died. Wow. That's and while wild. we were there, oh they went to the funeral. God. I wasn't even prepared to do that. Yeah. But that's the same company. That's the uh, that's the Haggerty people. And wow. it was it was just so like he was just such a awesome guy when we grew up. He was just so nice to all of us. See that applies to Paul's story about driving the car to work though. Why not enjoy it? Because you could be dead in, in I'd 10 rather seconds. buy a car that's a year old that already has the fucking I want to kill myself dent in it than a new one. <laughs> that's, that's true. That brand new car it's just downhill from there. Yep. I love your <laughs> Tesla. That thing's cool. That's, that's a nice car. Have you seen this uh the moonroofs in those? It goes it's literally like you're looking through a, a Yeah, the funny of thing glass. is is I put foil. I made this like insulator because it's so hot on my head. I put foil and I put insulation, then I put batting and I put it up there permanently. Cause what, what model do you have? I have a three, oh, but I have okay. an early three where you got um, you got a lot of stuff for free. Uh-huh. I got the the garage door opener thing, which is now an option. Yeah. But I have the I have the uh, full autonomous. Uh, oh, you got the, the piloting for package three thousand dollars. They're twelve now because yeah. I just took a test drive last weekend. Yeah, you did. And I, yeah, I was extremely impressed. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I mean, that could be. The next car. <laughs> that's a that's a car. It was a There's y. actually a company that makes kits for those things, front end kits that make them look really cool. Yeah, it's StarTech. Yeah, StarTech. Yeah, it's a Bra- It's a Brabus uh, yeah. company. 
Yeah. It's really cool. But Those that car, rad. you know, I'm I'm really happy with the car. I think, you know, Tesla's kind of a loose cannon. He he just says dumb things, but the guy deep down inside makes a lot of the right decisions. You look at his his companies. Yeah. And his company was, you know, and they say, oh, this company already existed. He just took them over because they were failing. Nobody sells a company unless somebody irritates the fuck out of them or they're ready to go out of business. That's mm. just how it is. So he bought that. Those guys were ready to sell. They were probably, you know, a lot of times when you run a business, you reach the point where you just can't get any bigger. You don't have the the wherewithal, the knowledge to go to that next level. Like, you know, you look at like Sweetwater. He took that company to what it is because his vision continually growed with it. But you've got a lot of people that can't ever get past that point. It just, yeah. it, it's enough for them. Or they need a new person with vision. Yeah. And so, you know, and so he took that over, the same with the SpaceX thing. I mean, he's the guy bringing people back from the the, the space station. Yeah. Russia's not going to do it. Yeah. He did that. He pulled that off, you know. He 3D printed the first rocket engine. Elon. Yeah. 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 Plus, Amazing. he just bought Twitter, and now we can all actually we not all be, have our voices silenced by bots and algorithms. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's uh, you know the the car is a it's a nice <coughs> car. I mean, I, I really enjoy driving it, and I'll tell you just the autopilot part of it, not the autonomous part, but the yeah. autopilot part of it. When I'm on the freeway, because when I would drive down from Buellton or Santa Barbara area to yeah. here, when I would come down to work, um, and I do that every week, I'd drive down and I'd go back. Um, I would get in my car from my house, and you know how when you dr- leave your house, and then by the time you get here, you're like beat up you want to go upstairs i need a half an hour yeah no calls and you just sit up there going like fuck 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 <laughs> yeah. you know i would get out of my car and feel exactly like how i got into it yeah because oh, i wasn't dealing with the idiots it was slowing down it was changing lanes yeah. doing everything on its own and the thing that i noticed was i could look to the right and left of me and i could see someone on their phone and so I would go over to the next lane because I knew that guy was going to drift into me at some point. I didn't have to watch in front of me because it was handled. Yeah, that's so. So crazy. I could notice everything around me, and I enjoyed the drive. And you, you, these pictures of these people falling asleep and stuff—it's all bullshit. And most of them, you always see they got sunglasses on. That's because they so they're watching where they're going. But they they have to wiggle the encoders at some point every two minutes. You have to do something you have to, to tell the car you're it. there, or yeah. it won't continue to drive. Yeah. And these guys that are in the back seat, you can hang the you can hang the the orange from one side or something, and it weighs that pulls the steering slightly to one side, so there's always tension on the servo, so it thinks you're there. Yeah, that that kind of works. <laughs> but you know it's like who would want to do just, that just to be a dick yeah. you know and it's so stupid other auto companies want to wreck tesla's rep by doing those things well what happens That's why they, is those videos get, go viral the to, very to first trash one, them the very first one was the guy driving on the five he was doing 90 miles an hour and crashes into the barrier he was drunk and all this kind of shit okay i can tell you exactly what happened and this and tesla changed the way they did things but it used to be you had to do this. And you know, like with flying faders, if you take your fingernail and push on the fader, you know how it pushes back? And there's a point where you push it and it just lets go mm-hmm. because the servo just let, it, it turns it off so there's no more resistance. With the Tesla, you pull on it, it has tension, okay? So when it, when it starts beeping at you, you have to wiggle the steering wheel a little bit to tell it that you're there. And that's how it knows because yeah. the servo wants you to stay here and you're pulling it this way. So it goes like this and it notices that change and it says, okay, he's manipulating the steering wheel. He's still awake, so we'll continue to drive. But what happens is if you have an evasive situation and you pull on it, 
it'll pull so far then disengage okay but the problem is when, you know it's like if i pull on your arm okay and then you release it i'll punch myself in the face because that that tension got released but i've got force okay so what this guy was doing he was drunk he'd be driving along and he'd get up there and he'd put his hand on the steering wheel pull down a little bit on it okay it would recognize it and would continue driving all right what he did is he pulled down on it too hard and it disengaged and so his hand goes like this and he went right like that into oh, the barrier really that's what happened okay yeah. and so in most of those accidents that's what's happened it's that type of thing where you disengage. So they went to the encoders now. So now all you have to do is just spin the encoders. That's you don't the little wheels. The little wheels. Yeah. You don't have to turn the wheel. And then about every 20 minutes, you have to actually disengage and reengage it. Oh, you do? Yeah, because it, okay. won't, it won't just stay on forever. Wow. Now, the big problem with the autonomous driving thing is um, <clears throat> you, have to, um, you have to pass the safety test so it monitors your driving. And so there's a lot of things that, they're, that are wrong with it, like if someone pulls in front of you you have to brake it considers that as bad driving but it's not necessarily your fault so that part of it's kind of fucked up but most of the states aren't allowing it right now what model are you looking at model y oh that's what, a nice car we that? have one of those too what's the it's, suv one that's, that's an suv two. oh the y yes. the okay, y is an suv they have a it's, y it's and they like have my, the x uh, you know mercedes yeah yeah, yeah. But cool. you know what I you know I loved about the car? It's just so smooth. And there's fun. none of this jerkiness, you know, shifting gears and the you know, and I thought I would miss the sound, but you know the yeah. you know, little sputter. Well you can make back. fart sounds outside yeah. the car. Uh, probably, yeah. You can. Well they have it they have it set up, you can do that. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> and you can make fart sounds in the car too. You can move it the whoopee cushion to the back seat and you push the right encoder and it goes what? and then the person <laughs> in the back kidding? is like, you know. I didn't know it's that. hilarious. Oh yeah, the other thing at Jingle Bell, the Christmas mode, where you <coughs> you put it on, and every time you hit this the turn signal, it Jingle Bells. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, you can, there's ding, a light ding. show mode. There's the disco mode. Oh, there's all these different like things. Cool it's and it's a lot of fun, and you can switch the map to be Mars, and you're the Mars, that little robot, and you're driving along Mars, and it and it's like, but the, your directions will still tell you where to go. That's so you're driving, so but it's just this big orange blob, you know. <laughs> But it's uh you know yeah. they, it, it's nice. I mean it's it's very well laid out, and I'll tell you what, it's punchier than fuck. It's you have ridiculously that, fast. I drove the performance one. It's it, scary. It's, it's rocket fast. It's yeah. insane. I, I can't imagine what that plaid's like. It's that, in. It, it is. That it, must it be is out of control. Hundred percent torque. Anytime you want, and nothing it. can beat it. I, no. I watch these YouTubes. Seven twenty McLarens. They can't beat a, te- uh-uh. a Tesla. I mean, nothing. Really, there's nothing on the planet that because you have can... you have a hundred percent torque. You don't have yeah. to get in the power curve. You have a hundred percent torque off the up. line. Yeah. I want. I my lease is up June first, and I was going to look at the BMW X seven, but that the uh, you, you got to go drive. Time? You got to go drive one. I've I've drove. Uh, they drove give it the to smaller you. They ones. let you drive it. They, I mean, they gave me it for like. Half hour so by yourself? Like, oh yeah! Wow, just that's take the cool. car. Well, you know they take your yeah, of course, but and information. It's so not like a five make minute sure come back with but, a dealer guy. But yeah, yeah I mean that. Do you I save would, big money on the gas too. What's that? Do you save big money annually? Oh, I pay about probably five dollars and sixty cents a month. Oh, <laughs> for electricity, I spent four hundred <laughs> on gas. I drive every morning, but well, you, you now you think now you think about this, okay? Now when I was driving down here because I had the Cayman. Remember? Yeah, oh yeah. I had the Cayman S, and I would drive down here, and it would cost me ninety dollars every week wow. to drive down here and back. And okay. that was ten years ago. Well, yeah, no, it was five years ago. Yeah. Okay. You know? So 
you take that times four, all right, you're talking about almost $400. Times now, 12. Times 12. But you look at $400 a month you're paying on gas, all right? Yeah. You look at the payment of a Tesla <clears throat> that might be $680, and you go, oh, I can't afford that. And it's like, actually, you can because you're paying Two hundred eighty dollars, right? Because you're already paying four hundred. Plus, there's no maintenance. There's no oil. Oh, no, the wow, brakes. About and there's that. no. That's they cool. said the brakes last a hundred thousand miles because of the regenerative. I don't even use the brakes. Well, that's I know you just <laughs> let off and it slows down, and stops. Yeah, and then when it stops, it goes into hold. Yeah, no, it's oh, there's no maintenance because they said the only thing you're going to have to do is tires. It's like nothing. And the tires are actually pretty good, except Anita blew one out yesterday for no reason. But Tesla came and got it and picked it up and fixed it and brought they it. Did? Yeah. They do all that? They do. They're really pros. They really they sent an Uber for her wow. to pick it up. Wow. They paid for it. And they, you know, and they, they she had to buy the tire, but they did everything else was, was free. He owns that company. Yeah. yeah. And they do all the updates on everything. And it does it does That's just on, over the air, right? Yeah, it's all over the air. It's great. Yeah. I mean you do upgrade and, and it's one of those things that the upgrades that the updates they have don't like brick your computer. They're really good. They have some really cool, cool features they do. They always improve everything. And you, they, they get feedback from the way you drive, and so they're constantly improving everything you're doing. So it's, <laughs> it's a constant crazy. cycle, but it's amazing. Uh, two yeah. quick questions. Mm -hmm. Can we take the Porsche to Santa Barbara for the Smashing Pumpkins concert on the 13th? Would Can I even you, fit in it? Why would you want to do that? Because it'll get destroyed. <sighs> why would it get destroyed? It's a Maranathon. What's a Maranathon? Well, any concert. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really a track car. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you wouldn't fit in it very well. <laughs> no, I mean six three two fifty because it's got a roll bar in back of the the seat, and it so it restricts the seat on your side. And um, I saw it last year when you drove it. That if one you're day. five foot. Eight or nine, you're okay. If you're six foot, forget it. Okay. Yeah. When I had mine, I could I could come around off the GW Parkway, and I would do. They had a banked ramp, which is really unusual, <laughs> and I would drift around that onto the key bridge at about. I'd hit a one k tone, just, and I'd drift onto there. Then we had the Whitehurst Freeway, which is elevated freeway, and then the bayou was underneath, and there was a. There was a ramp that went off that was never finished. So they just had this like thin barrier, and then there was a cement factory right below it. So if you fucked up, you ended up. Oh, you're in the cement. You're in the cement factory. You're dead. You know, <laughs> I would hit, I would hit that corner at like ninety and drift around the corner, and then hit the key bridge, and then right before the exit for the thing, you had to slow down and turn. I would e-brake it and drift sideways, and then hit that thing. And by the time I got to the end, I would make. Two corrections. I almost got that bridge like this, just about straight. Perfect. Two minor corrections. Get to the end. I was doing 100 miles an hour. Get to this this little cross street because there's a divider, and I would put the e-brake on and slide through the cross street into the other side of the road, and then go down <laughs> Jesus. Go down the road like underneath Powers. onto Water Street, and then drift slide into my parking spot. Wow. And I would do that every fucking day. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> you that's could funny. not tip that car over. And it was 
perfectly balanced. So you could fifty drift. fifty. Yeah. Yeah, you can drift. Oh my God, it's such a great car to drift in. The and they Ken- weigh nothing. They weigh it my yeah, car weighs in it, it like nineteen hundred and eighty pounds. Yeah, nineteen eighty. Oh, do you feel it kind of No. Oh no, no. It's a very uh stable car. Corners uh, on rails. It, yeah, corners on oh, rails. Yeah. And when you get a, a motor that's got two hundred and fifty horsepower, the horsepower to weight ratio is like Incredible. So I've been. I had a Momo in it, Momo steering wheel, and I that that steering wheel a lot of times would was like this because I bent it holding on to it for dear life going around corners. <laughs> Paul Wolf can be found at fixaudiodesigns.com. Last question: What's your favorite recording studio? You've been in them all. Been in them all. I, you know, when I go into a studio, the first thing I do is I listen. I smell. I want to see what it smells like, and. When I go down the hallway of this studio, it smells like my whole life. Electronics. Studio 3, right? It has a sound. Yeah, yeah. it has a smell to it. Everybody says that. <laughs> I, I really do like this studio. This is this is my favorite place. I mean, I've been to a lot of them. Um, you know, a lot of the, like East West has the same historical content to it. You know, you go in there and you have the same kind of a vibe. But yeah. this is my, I just like this. And it's the, our history. I mean, it's always yeah. it's always been friendly to me, you know. I can I can come in here and bring somebody into studio one and take the wall apart and show them the the chamber without anybody giving me any shit. You, I couldn't do that anywhere else, anywhere I go. That's only you, you that know. Can do that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he's got me. the A pass. But it's yeah. yeah. It's but own- I mean, I you know, home studios like Greg's studio. I love his studio. It's a nice home studio. I, I enjoy that place. No, but commercial as a, ones. Yeah. As a facility goes, I just I really like this. place. Well, it's so astonishing though because there's no corporate sponsors or it's never been sold it's just him and his dad for no this six is decades yeah. this is an interesting this is an interesting thing because the history of this and you told me in early days when your dad and walt disney were be- best friends and and your dad says to walt disney let's make a recording studio walt disney goes why the fuck would anybody want to do that yeah, exactly. and he goes well what do you want to do he says i want to make a theme park and then he had it all done on a, like a four by eight uh, pl- piece of plywood this model so and your incredible. dad's looking at it like how are you going to make any money doing this? You know, oh no, I got this over. I mean, this is visionary stuff, you yeah. know. And he, your dad did every, every like soundtrack to every Disney movie that existed. Yeah, yeah. that and th- some of the rides and yeah, Net Funicello. And oh my god, he grew up around all this stuff. And when yeah, Jimmy yeah. Messina worked here, Jimmy was the only person that his dad would allow to go into a session with because yeah. Jimmy didn't allow drugs in the control room. And so he would let Paul come and watch him do watch sessions, him do, which wow, was Buffalo Springfield. Story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got you were in on the Crosby Joni yeah. Mitchell session. Yeah, that was Buff. Well, actually, it was Buffalo Springfield. It was, oh, it uh, was. Crosby with Stephen Stills, and they were uh, winding down Buffalo Springfield. I think they're doing last time around, and uh, David had a girl with him, and it yep. was and it was Joni. Yeah. Gosh, that stuff just gets yeah. me. I love you know that you know history. it's funny. My brother befriended um, Carly Simon's mom. He met her in New York when he worked at the Times. Uh, he was an artist. He did a lot of their sports pages. He did all the drawings they did. Yeah. And he was friends with her, and she actually got him his first gig there. She didn't really, like, say, I want you to use this guy. She just said, hey, there's this artist that you should know. He's really good. Because he m- met her somehow, and he would go out and stay with her in the summers at his house, at her house. And I didn't know that she was Simon and Schuster. I just knew that she was Carly's yeah. mom and dad, you know, and, and James Taylor and you know stuff. So oh, wow. I went up there to visit my brother, and I stayed there with them. Um, 
and she made uh, her house was just full of all pictures, like it was every president. Every, I'm going like, holy shit, you know, nicest lady on the face of the earth, you know. And one of the things that I, when I grew up, I never liked to eat peas ever. Peas. I hated peas. <laughs> so we go up there. I come there. We talk and stuff like that. And what does she make for lunch? <laughs> Pea, Pea soup, soup with <laughs> Pea soup with bacon in it. Oh, that's and good. And I ate every bit of it. And then she asked me if I wanted more because, you know, you want to be polite. Right. It was actually pretty good. It was actually good. But my brother told me afterwards, he said, I've never seen you so humble in your life. I have to hand it to you. You really did the right thing. And that's, that was my experience. But she was a sweetheart. She was really nice. Wow. But, you know, it was, you know, when you meet those people and your friends, with, like with Jimmy, I, he's one of my best friends. I, I did, did his last guy. record with him. Yeah. And he's just the nicest guy there is. I mean, I go to his house. You know, I get a phone call the other day. Okay, I'm in my office. I get a phone call. And I miss the phone call. So I pick it up and I play the message. You know what the message is? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. But we have a lot of fun. I mean, we do. He's got a wood shop and a metal shop. We make <coughs> everything. We do. You know, I've modified all of his guitar amps. And, you know, I go out live with him a lot of times because I really enjoy it. We're coming down there next month. Paul's never been to Nashville. Yeah. So damn it. You need, you, need do that. you need to show me around. <laughs> out to Jimmy's house and we'll have a barbecue. <laughs> He's got horses too, right? Damn, damn it. Yeah. Michaela is like, she's like the animal whisperer. She has the greatest animals, and and we get our eggs from them, and duck eggs and chicken eggs. And Holy they, cow. they just got this field dog, duck eggs. This white, oh, they're great. They're like bigger and thicker and creamier. They're they're really good. But really? she has she's got this dog who's kind of like it's a it's a it's a farm dog. You know, it's white furry. I don't know what kind it is, but is the you know, and she is like she is literally the animal whisperer. She has names for all the ducks. They all recognize her. They talk to her. I mean, she has. I mean, it's just amazing <laughs> to see this. You know, and. So she gets this dog. She posts this picture of one of the horses nuzzling the dog's neck. And the dog is just like this. You know, and she, so she ends up with it. Because got, you got a problem with, like, animals, you know, eating the chickens and stuff. So this dog is, that's what they're for. Oh, and she, the, the dog stays out with the, with, the, with the animals. But the dog plays with all the animals. Awesome. It's so incredible. Wow. Yeah. Paul Wolf is at fixaudiodesigns.com. Uh, our preamps will be available in the coming weeks, months. Yeah, because I'm getting all the parts again for the next run of them. More this time. We'll advertise that on our social media. It is our 60-year anniversary. You can go to sunsetsoundstore.com, pick up a T-shirt. I think this is very uh, well done today, and appreciate you coming in. And uh, we learned this about API. Yeah. We learned about it's Porsche. Good to see you again, Paul. I know it's been two years, literally. It's been a while. I know it's the first thing I did when I got here is I went over to Love to Eat Thai and ate rest, <laughs> ate my lunch. Yeah, that was your great, favorite place. My favorite place. Yeah, I remember the first day I brought you there, and I you you said I'll have what he's having, and it was like yeah. I didn't say a word, and Dude. when you got it, it was like fire in his mouth. I know, I'm like. <laughs> This isn't mild. Well, Anita cooks, you know, great Thai food, so I'm used to the hot yeah. stuff. So. Did you turn Juizel Zap onto that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I went up to his house um, one night, and and I I just said I called him up and I said, I, "What are you guys doing for dinner?" And he goes, uh, "We haven't really decided. Well, I'm going to go by the greatest Thai place on the face <laughs> of the earth. I'll bring you something. Just pick whatever you want and tell me what it is." He goes, "Oh, okay." So they look at the menu online, and and he you know calls me back, tells me, and I bring it. And so we're sitting in his kitchen, we're eating this stuff, and he goes like, this is like really good. This is like really good. <laughs> yeah. And now apparently it's his favorite place. Everybody's, it's... it's, it's How do you not like it? Yeah. yeah, I know. It's the greatest Thai food in the What's face. What's the other one we go to? Uh, there isn't another one. We go to a different one. 
That's uh, like Ren a little... goes another one. Oh, that's it. Yeah, because yeah, it's cheaper. Oh, yeah, there, there was another studio that I liked as good as this one. Ren... <laughs> you, you have a favorite restaurant, and that's the end of it. That's your favorite restaurant. <laughs> Love to eat Thai. No, Ren does it, the tech, because he's yeah, cheapskate. He likes to go to the different one. Yeah, that's good food. They have <laughs> Better thai... cut that out. <laughs> yeah, they have Thai tea pudding there. <clears throat> they don't make it anymore, but oh, my God, that was so good. Yeah. They have the, uh, yeah, the mango sticky rice. Anita makes that. Anita makes a really good sticky rice and mango. Make it takes her all fucking day to make that stuff. It's <laughs> wow. like you got to cook the rice, then you got to let it sit, then you got to talk to it, and then you got to put it in a bag, and you got to have the special, looks like a hat that they wear, you know, the straw hat. You got to have the steamer hat, and then you got to, you know, and it's like this whole process, you know, but when you eat it, it's like, oh my God, this is good. Same with sushi rice. You don't just make rice and then make sushi. It's got to be this whole yeah. process, and ah. it's like, ugh. Yeah, she made, she got us. She got us through COVID with her cooking. With cooking. And she had, it was a different dish every night. She just got into this thing. It was like, what else could you do? Yeah. We still don't have, we still don't go to the grocery store. We still have the, the groceries delivered. That's nice. Because it's just turned into this thing. It's like, oh, fuck it. Why waste two hours of your life going to a store and just, you know, to be disappointed? <laughs> <laughs> That's a round table. <laughs>